Scrum. In five, four, three, two. Welcome back, everybody, to the Savage Cromcast, season three, episode five, "The Moon of Skulls." I'm Josh. I'm Luke, and I'm John. And if you add our essences together, you form a beautiful bouquet that we like to call the Cromcast. Guys, it welcome smells back. So good. Oh, it smells good. And there's another aroma in the air, a beautiful one. This week we have a special guest with us, Jeff Shakes. Hey, Jeff, how's it going? Hey, how's it going? Do I really smell beautiful? Oh yeah. Well, I mean, as far as we can tell through the <laughs> through the adds the smell to the to the call, we'll be able to know. Yeah, there's an add-on. I didn't download it, but I think we both uh, have to have it. We, we can assume I do smell. smell <laughs> well, like it's fine Irish whiskey. <laughs> now, that is true. <laughs> uh, so Jeffrey Shanks is with us, a noted Howard scholar, pulp archaeologist. Jeff, what's going on? Uh, my my background is actually in archaeology. Uh, I'm an archaeologist, uh, anthropologist, historian. But uh, in recent years, I've started uh, delving into uh, pop culture studies. Um, and you know, I've been a Howard fan all my life, and uh, so you know, I've gotten really involved in Howard fandom and you know the last few years, and in Howard scholarship. And um, I kind of got sucked into it accidentally. Started blogging and started writing articles and. Um, you know, so now I'm now I'm sort of a regular in, in Howard fandom and Howard studies. How long have you been? Uh, how long have you been reading Howard's work? Oh God, uh, my my introduction to to Conan before before I actually read Howard's Conan was uh, the one of the Marvel uh, comic books with the records, Power Records, back in the back in the seventies. I was probably only five or six. And which is way too young, probably, to be reading you know, from a comic book, you know. But uh, but I had that. It was with art by Neil Adams, um, which I didn't realize when I was five. But now I recognize that and appreciate it. Um, and then started reading the story. You know, so I read the comic book, started reading the, the, the actual Howard stories in you know, probably around 11 or so, 10 or 11, uh, with the old you know, pap- ace paperbacks with the Frazetta covers. You know, that's how I, how I got into it. Awesome. That's awesome. Yeah, that's that seems like a perfect age for a, a young boy to uh to yeah. to begin uh sort of expanding his horizons with uh Frazetta's Absolutely. Frazetta's that's when covers and learns about the riddle of the steel. That's oh, true. Yeah. Well, it, it was about that time that the movie came out too. I, in fact, it, it was I'm not sure if I read the books before I saw the movie or vice versa because it, it was really right at the same time for me, right when I was about 10 or 11. And so, yeah, I got we had HBO. So I could watch, you know, I'd stay up late and watch rated R movies when I was <laughs> So Conan, it was awesome. You know, I saw yeah. it probably, again, probably way too young. It probably warped me. That's probably why. <laughs> well, it warped you the you same way that it warped all of us, right? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> That's awesome. So you're with us today to discuss the Moon of Skulls. And, you know, we've talked about Conan on the show before, but Solomon Kane is, is the feature of this season. When, do you remember when you first started reading Solomon Kane and, and non-Conan Howard stuff? You know, I w- it was probably the comic books that introduced me to Solomon Kane as well. There were several backup features in um, uh, Savage Sword of Conan. Uh, he would appear in there. 
And that was probably my introduction to it. And uh, then I uh, picked up uh, the, the Donald Grant books uh, somewhere there, probably in high school. This would have been back in the 80s, I guess. Uh, and that's when I read, first read the stories, or the Howard versions. So, yeah. So, yeah, my teens probably. Yeah. And it's very different. I mean, yeah. 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 Solomon Cain's, yeah, it's, it's a very different thing. And he's a very unique character. And it has become kind of archetypal. You know, I mean, you see, um, you know, in movies, uh, you know, like Van Helsing, you know, the sort of the witch finder archetype, right? Yeah. Um, you know, Captain Kronos, you know, was the old Hammer film back in the day, you know. And, you know, so a, a lot of these are coming from uh, from Solomon Cain, the sort of Puritan, uh, uh, you know, a, Kind of a, a Puritan version of the occult detective uh, archetype, you know, that was popular in the early 20th century. Um, you know, that's where you sort of encountering these supernatural, you know, menaces and having to deal with them, uh, you know, that sort of thing. But it's a cool spin on it, you know, with the, the, being a Puritan, you know. For sure. Definitely. Yeah, I think that gives it a level of uh, of meat to, to really digest that, that sets him apart from the other types of characters that you're mentioning there. Uh, right. Just the, the, the weird somber attitude and whether or not the guy happens to be a little bit crazy and have some screws loose, you know, <laughs> oh, I think absolutely. that's the, the level oh. to it that's really neat. Absolutely. And, you know, and I think in, you know, you started getting hints of that in the first couple of stories, uh, that you read. And I think in this one, uh, he, he pushes that a little bit further. Um, when you, again, you hear the links that he's gone to. In tracking down this girl, you know, we saw that in Red Shadows where he's following this one guy just for vengeance, you know, in order to avenge someone he didn't even know. He's traveling and he's just <laughs> obsessed, you know, with this. Uh, you know, so I, I think that's absolutely Howard is trying to clue you in that, you know, this guy is not all there. Um, you know, definitely. He's, he's, he's clearly nuts. You know? <laughs> I've been pretty interested in our so far in the season in that this is all much more raw. I feel than some of the Conan stuff that we've read in terms of just Howard's writing. It oh, seems yeah. different. Yeah. I mean, it's earlier. It's, it's yes. early in his career, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, by the time you know, he's writing the Conan stories, uh, you know, particularly the last couple of years or so, you know, the, the later Conan stories, you know, he's a much more polished writer by that point. Um, so this is still early. He's still finding his way. You know, he's, um, he's toying with some of the elements that are going to become, um, sword and sorcery. You know, genre labels are problematic for a number of reasons, but (laughs) (laughs) you know, you can spend a whole show just talking about that. Um, but you can, you can see he's kind of experimenting here a little bit himself. Uh, he's wanting to write historical adventure. You know, at this point, he's really starting to get into that. He, you know, he's, he's been reading other pulp writers like Talbot Mundy and Harold Lamb, these you know great historical adventure writers. Um, but the one place where he's getting published is Weird Tales, and so he's having to uh, he's having to write to that. He's having to include a supernatural element, and so that's forcing him to combine genres a little bit. Um, and you know, the end result ultimately would be sword and sorcery. You know? And, and with Solomon Cain, you see him starting to experiment a little bit with that. Yeah, very good point. Yeah. So before we delve into Moon of Skulls, and uh, even before one thing, I guess, Luke, you you have an announcement. Yeah, yeah. So we need to advertise Brian Keane's The Lost Level. With our last recording, uh, I mentioned that I was reading the, the advanced reader copy that, that Apex set us or, or sent us uh, in the mail, and 
So I've been talking a little bit with uh, with Jason Sizemore, and they really want uh, to see if we can get some of our listeners to, to become readers of Apex Publications. So if folks are interested, that book is Brian Keene's The Lost Level. And so I mentioned it again with, uh, with the last recording, but it's basically a throwback to the vintage uh, pulps uh, in the vein of like Edgar Rice Bur- Burroughs. Uh, and, and a lot of the man out of time type stories where you have this adventurer that goes on these crazy different trips to different settings. And so with, with Keen's story, there's a fellow named Aaron Pace who, uh, is an occultist in training, sort of, and, uh, creates some sort of magical, magical incantation or binding and he gets zipped to, uh, the lost level, which is this sort of dimension in between all the other dimensions within the multiverse. And it's the kind of place where, a T-Rex battles a, a giant robot where there are giant blue cat people. Uh, there's, you know, uh, some, some tribal people. There's a, a, a nice lady that Aaron runs into and strikes up a relationship with. Uh, and just all kinds of, of hijinks. So it's a lot of fun. It's really throwbacky, but at the same time, it's not written in, in that style so that it's, it's, it's dated. Like it's, it's definitely sort of a modern spin on that. And it's, it's kind of cool that it has uh, the avenue for for subsequent books. I think this is a series that uh, Mr. Keen's starting up. So if folks are interested in the book, uh, if you go to Apex Publications and order it through their website, you can get 50% off if you use promo code CROMCAST, uh, C-R-O-M-C-A-S-T. You can use that and get 50% off either the uh, hard copy or the e-copy. E-copy is $6.99, so you get 50% off of that. And then the trade paperback is $15.95. You would get 50% off of that if you use promo code CROMCAST. C-R-O-M-C-A-S-T. All yep. in capital letters. All capitalized. Like a boss. Like a boss. Awesome. That's a great deal, and that sounds like an awesome book. And we'll be sure to post a link so that uh, you guys can go right to our website, click on the link, click through, put in that promo code. Yeah, I mean, you can get the book for for 50% off, and you're really uh, supporting a local small publisher here in Kentucky. It's a good deal. It's an awesome, fun book. You know, if you're going to spend four bucks on a on an ebook, you know, you can't really go wrong. No, oh, that's a great deal. That's a great deal. So we got to thank Jason Sizemore for uh, allowing us to use that promo code and... Yeah, you guys should check it out. Yeah, and, uh, you know, go to Apex Magazine's webpage. Every current issue is free. You know, there is award-winning speculative fiction, short fiction that's listed there, free to read. There's all kinds of essays and, and nonfiction, uh, scholarly-type stuff as well. And, you know, it rotates every month. You get something fresh. Awesome. That's great. That sounds really cool. Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to check that out myself. Awesome. That's what... Yeah, sweet. So, uh, number one. Number one. Number two <laughs> is what we're drinking tonight. Oh, yeah. Uh-huh. Drink, let's, drink, drink. let's let the guests go first. Jeff, what you drinking over there? All right. I am drinking a very Howardian beverage. This is John L. Sullivan Irish Whiskey. Uh, this is good stuff. It was actually uh, Chris Gruber, who's another Howard scholar, that turned me on to this. He, uh, Chris is uh, one of the experts on Howard's boxing stories. And, uh, you know, John L. Sullivan, of course, the, the great... Irish American, you know, last bare knuckle champion in the 19th century. The cool thing about this whiskey, this Irish whiskey, it's, uh, they use, uh, bourbon barrels, girls from Kentucky. Nice. And you guys hometown that are shipped over to em- empty old used bourbon barrels 
are shipped to Ireland where they age the Irish whiskey in the bourbon barrels nice. to give it. So it's sort of a, you know, it is kind of an Irish American kind of, kind of thing going on there. So it's appropriate. It's John L. Sullivan. And he was one of Howard's favorite boxers too. So I figured tonight that would be an appropriate drink. Absolutely, man. That <laughs> sounds delicious. <laughs> yeah, that sounds awesome. I looked it, it really is good. Here's the key. You got to get the 10 year, which okay. is even better. Okay. Uh, there's two, there's a regular version and there's the 10 year. The 10 year is called the 10 count. Awesome. Um, that's what you got. So you have a clever boxing pun there. So that's a great marketing ploy, and I got suckered in. Nice. <laughs> it works. And I, it wish t- I was cool enough that when I died, people would remember me as the last bare knuckle boxing champion. <laughs> Dude, you never know. You got to start training, know, man. You can be like a like the the last great American wrestler or something. <laughs> fighting professor. <laughs> fighting professor. Sweet. So, John, what you drinking yeah. in Nebraska? Oh, you you know me. I, I'm sticking with the Kentucky True uh, Wild Turkey 101. Putting it in my blood. <laughs> <laughs> I knew it. How about you, Josh? Luke poured the last of the early times into my mug, so I'm slumming it again. It's the um, last of the early times. <laughs> it's, it's the last of the early times. I, I, uh, I don't want to offend early times, but I probably won't be buying another bottle. <laughs> uh, it, we'll, we'll switch it up next time. But, uh, that was, that was a substantial amount of bourbon that Luke put into my mug and it's mostly gone. So. I would say it was probably like two and a half, three fingers worth, uh, worth of whiskey because, yeah. uh, I poured the first little bit and there wasn't enough to go in my glass. I'm like, oh, he can. He can handle the rest of it, so I just sort of he, the bottle out. He brought it. He can finish it. <laughs> and so, so once we get through that, uh, I poured some Jim Beam, and we've got about a half bottle of that that we can start working on. Nice. Dang. We really need to have some sort of database or some sort of a <laughs> blog post that just shows how much bourbon we've we've consumed. During. I think that would be good. It's it's a lot. It's it's. It's a lot. It could be yeah. like those uh, the charity drives where they have the blood bank that fills up or uh-huh. whatever. Yeah, yeah, it's a, it's a bourbon bottle. <laughs> <laughs> yes. All right. So that's drink roll call. It is drinks. Now let's hit the one things, y'all. Y'all. We need, like, transition music. We've talked about it before. <laughs> yeah. That works. Jeff, do you All have right, a one my, thing? My one thing. My one thing is fifth edition Dungeons & Dragons. Oh, do you guys role play at all? Y'all, y'all ever played any games? At all? We do. Those two yeah. nerds do. <laughs> uh, me, me and so, Luke do. You know, so you know, I've been playing off and on for you know since I was again since I was probably you know nine or ten. Um, so I've been playing D and D since you know, you know old school rules back in the day. Um, really got hardcore into three point five. You know when that came out and uh, been playing it. You know, I got one campaign that's been going on for. Uh, well, we converted it to 3.5, so it's older than that. But, wow. uh, um, so it was really into that. And so I, you know, I didn't even bother with, with, uh, fourth edition, didn't really, you know, and, uh, but I, I finally, you know, reading more about fifth, it's taken me about six. I know it's been out for about six months, but I just now started really looking into it. And, uh, man, it's great. I love it. I started, I, I got hooked on it this past weekend, just going through the books and, Started, uh, I'm playing a, I'm running a Temple of Elemental Evil campaign. Old oh, school cool. Greyhawk, right? With, uh, with my son and his friends. Uh, and, uh, so I've instantly, I've been obsessed now trying to convert this. Over, so is uh, that a, you're, last week, you you're know. adapting the module? Yeah, I actually, okay. ad- I had already adapted old, this old school, uh, Temple of Elemental Evil, old lady and rules. I had already converted that to 3.5. 
and which was a lot of work. Yeah. And, <laughs> you know, and now I'm converting it into fifth edition. I just started this week and it's great. It's nice. This may be, you know, after, after 30 something years of playing this, this may be the perfect version of, of Dungeons and Dragons. Wow. That's, that's a hearty recommendation. That, that, yeah. Those are big words. Cool. It's, it's just right. It's got, you know, it's taken this long. Yeah. <laughs> you know, trial and error to get there. I think. But, uh, Man, I love it. Yeah. Well, both both Josh and I are like three point five players. Like that's that's how we've yeah. that's how we played. That's how all we through, rolled. That's that's how we yeah. rolled all <laughs> through all through grad school. <laughs> right. And we've dabbled in some of the some other uh, systems and sort of bounced around within our group. And we've we haven't been playing anything like here recently. Really, we've been on hiatus for a while, but. We were playing three five the most intensively, yeah. and oh, yeah. did did some Pathfinder type stuff too, which I really I, like that. But uh, I'm intrigued to hear that that you think that five is the bee's knees. Yeah. It's, it's all of the great stuff about three point five, um, but it's been smoothed smoothed off the rough edges. Basically, they, okay. they they cleaned it up and made it smoother. I mean, and I, I'm I'm like you guys. I love three point five. I know a lot of people complain it's too math heavy, it's too whatever. I mean, I love that stuff. Yeah, you know, I I can grapple in three five like that. <laughs> nobody nobody can grapple in three five, but I can I actually. Name I had well, I had a dwarf grappling character at one point, so I had to. Right, but, right. You know, I love three five, but I gotta say, this fifth edition it takes all of the good things about three five and it and just makes it run much more smoothly, much more cleanly. Um, yeah, I like it. I don't cool. know. We'll see. And it, it's very close. It's close to three five. They've gone back. You know, more towards three five with this. You know, cool. they realized they screwed up with fourth edition, and everybody bailed them at the Pathfinder. Yeah. Um, you know, so so it's cool. This is what fourth edition probably should have been. Okay. Yeah, fourth edition seemed to want to grab a hold of the MMO craze. Like it, it right. seemed it seemed like they were trying to adapt an, uh, a World of Warcraft sort of mechanic right. to to the game. Um, but to yeah, video I'm, gaming. Yeah, yeah exactly. That's what they were trying to do. Um, so yeah, I'm intrigued. Yeah, and if you're going to do that, you might as well just play video games, you know? Yeah, right, right. <laughs> yeah. You know? so. What's your name when you play? I like hearing the names. Oh, my name? Um, well, the, the Temple of Elemental Evil, I'm, I'm DMing, but the other campaign I'm in, I'm a barbarian. I'm a surprise, you know? Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, Vulfnir. Vulfnir. Vulfnir uh, <laughs> is my barbarian. He's, uh, what am I, 16th level now? So I'm I'm a kind of indestructible. Holy yeah. crap! With three with three point five rules, I've got like two hundred hit points. It's kind of sick. <laughs> when when Wolfnir rages, yeah. it is probably oh my God. fearsome well, to behold. It's like greater super mega uber rage at this point, you know, <laughs> sixteen, and, I, and you know, with you know super double extra cleave, you know. So I just love like hordes of low level characters that I can just jump into the middle of and you know just cleave. cleave, cleave. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. So does uh does fifth edition? I I don't want to turn this into the Dungeons and Dragons cast, but I, I really want to know. But with fifth it's edition, good. does it like retain the skills and feats that you do like in three five, or does what yes. is it? Yes, but it's been it's been simplified in a way that makes sense. So for example, you know in three five, we you know got to roll both a spot and a listen, you right? Gotta roll, you know both a you know, move silently and a hide. You know here it's just stealth and perception. Okay. You know, it's it's that kind of thing where they com- they combine things, you know, like that where it's it's just quicker. You, know, you make one roll instead of two, that yeah. kind of thing. Um, but the premise is the same, you know. So so it's good. That's a, that's a, probably the best example to show what the way they yeah. tweaked it. Awesome. 
That's my one thing. That's a that's a great one. That's a great one. Yeah. Okay, John, what is your one thing? Uh, my one thing is I've been on Netflix uh, watching with my wife the show Black Mirror from the BBC, and uh, I just I don't want to get into it too much, but I'd heard all these things about how Twilight Zone esque it was, and I would agree with that to a certain extent. It's just much, much, much more depressing than the Twilight Zone <laughs> has ever been to me. And I, we watched three episodes, and honest to God, like I wanted to slip my wrists after the third, <laughs> oh third one. We watched them over about four days, I guess, and it was just harsh. That's the first season's worth, and uh, they're just they're they're hard to get through. Like they're it's really really good, but it, it's gonna make you feel bad. Like be prepared to be kind of depressed afterwards. Maybe leave some time to watch a Comedy Central special or something after you finish with the Black Mirror. But it's this uh, episodic thing where each episode, it's different characters, different actors. And it's supposed to focus on, I guess I would say, the the technological fascination our, our current society has. Uh, very anti-Howardian things and how those things may play out in the future to be kind of bad. So, uh, the first one deals with like a Twitter terrorist almost who basically baits the prime minister of England into having sex with a pig live on television. Uh, the second one has to do with like almost a Farmville kind of thing. And the last one is about, uh, these people all have these things implanted in their head that let them actually replay like their Facebook timeline in real life so they can watch it through their own eyes. And they, everybody becomes excess, obsessed with watching their own past and like scrutinizing every detail. <laughs> so that one's actually been bought by Robert Downey Jr. I think he's going to make a movie that's out of it or something. Oh, that's pretty it's cool. A, it's a pretty interesting show, but like I said, be prepared to, to feel a lot at the end of it. Yeah, I, John, I actually, uh, just watched those recently oh, okay. as well. <laughs> and I, I did the same thing. So I've just seen, I guess the first season is episodes one through three. And then there's uh-huh. a second season that's on Netflix that's episodes four through six. Uh, right. but, but every one of the, the, the first season's episodes, they're, they're astoundingly good. And really, like the, the first and the third one, uh, are, are just, uh, just, just so, so powerful. Like, Really, really deep uh, things to consider about how technology f's up our heads. <laughs> cool. I actually like the second one the best. It's interesting to hear that you like. Oh, really? Three. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I, there was something about that one that just was really, really sad to me and stuck out to me. So it's it's interesting to hear your thoughts as well. Luke. Yeah, I, I knew think, that you would like it. I oh, knew that you had probably watched it too. Yeah, it's. I guess I would say I'm trying to to recall. The episode, the the third one, uh, it's the entire history of you, where everybody yeah. can sort of uh, go back and 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 observe what they'd done previously and what everybody else had done. That that one just just sort of twists the twists the knife. And that one is just, really good and really sad. It is like there, there's one. Well, never mind. Yeah, I can't. I can't, I can't even talk about it. It's, it. Really is so good. Yeah, that's a that's a good one, John. Cool. <laughs> that's that's in my queue. I haven't watched it yet. Uh, have you watched it yet, Jeff? Uh, no, I have not, but okay. I, I'm going to add it in there. It sounds cool. <laughs> yeah, it sounds cool. Yeah. I believe it is your turn now, Luke, to talk about your one thing. So my one thing is uh, Patrick Rothfuss's uh, The Kingkiller Chronicles. I've <laughs> I've been reading a lot over uh, like once we got through the holidays and just up to up to this recording. So I've mowed through uh, 
his first book, The Name of the Wind, and then the second one is Wise Man's Fear. The Wise Man's Fear, yeah. And so at this point, I'm I'm over the halfway point in The Wise Man's Fear, and it is it is really good. Uh, we've we've talked about <laughs> whether or not uh, we thought that that I would that I would dig it. Josh yeah. and I were were sort of talking about that when we were uh, talking about Joe Abercrombie's Blade itself uh, books and that sort of thing, uh, or the books of the first law, I should say. Uh, and this is like the total opposite side of a fantasy, the opposite side of the coin. It is not, uh, Abercrombie's, uh, really dark, uh, uh, fun sort of romp with lots of sex and violence and, and craziness going on. This is more of, uh, high fantasy. There's a lot going on. There's a lot of world building about, uh, religion and society and, and different groups coming into one contact with one another. But, but I would think that it's a little bit more highbrow in how it approaches things. And that's not to say that it's, that it's better or, or anything like that because it's just, it's just very different. Uh, and it's kind of cool. So I, <laughs> we I will see. I am, I, I have to admit, I'm surprised. I, I did not think he would like it. It's, uh, yeah. It's, it, you know, I said it was high fantasy, but now I'm thinking about that and it's not. Like there's not, uh, all of the Dungeons and Dragons uh, races running around in this story. There's there's a smattering of things, but just the way that it's that it's written is is very mystical and uh, uh, makes you sort of wonder at the 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 mysteries that are around the corners within this world. So I like it. Yeah. Have you read those, Jeff? I have not. I have read Joe Amber- Abercrombie, but okay. um, um, it sounds interesting. But I, I'm kind of more of a dark fantasy guy myself. You know. I yeah. Don't know. So you uh, you dig the Abercrombie stuff? Oh, I do. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. You know, that's. You know. Um, um, I don't know. I haven't high fantasy these days. It, well, I guess you know, like you said, it's not that high fantasy, but I don't know. Not my cup of tea, but I don't know. You it sounds interesting. It, I would say that there's actually probably the same levels of of magic in mm-hmm. the uh, the King Killer Chronicles as there are in the the books of the First Law. Like uh-huh. things happen that are mystical, but the, the average everyday person doesn't walk around and like talk to elves. Like that's not gotcha. happening, you know? Yeah. Well, but, that, that's probably not high fantasy. Yeah. <laughs> right. Uh, you know, that's, that's good. It's, Again, it's, it's labels. You know, yeah. yeah labels. Say, didn't we mention yeah. labels? Being yeah. Kind of yeah. Bad? yeah. It's, it's definitely more of a character study with this one fellow, Kavoth, I guess is how you want to pronounce Kvoth. it. Kvoth. Kvoth. Uh, I didn't know uh, how to pronounce it either. And, and he's, you know, he's the king killer, uh, but he's also, everything like he's he's really this <laughs> this, this champion and it's not to say that he's like uh <laughs> uh you know uh so prideful and walking about that it's it gets grating to me but he definitely is a young a young uh a young fellow that's a badass and like the story is recounting his younger days as he goes to goes to the academy and goes on adventures and so at this point it's really striking a a fine line of of the story being engaging and building this world and, and having a couple relationships that, that I find a little bit tedious. Like he has this, this love interest that keeps popping up and it's just way too, uh, what's the right word I'm trying to, to, to think of here way too convenient that she, she Mm -hmm. pops up all the time. And I think that that's part of the story that's ultimately going to unfold. But at this point, a book and a half in, I'm like, Oh my God, if this, if this character pops up one more time, it's just gonna, 
going to blow my mind. But he keeps screwing up and, and missing his opportunities with her and getting all down mm-hmm. in the dumps. And so I can at least read it and be like, okay, you know, that's that's humorous and it's interesting to see this character fail in that regard. I, I'd like to... I'd like to to maybe, if we ever decide to cover novels on the show, I think it would be neat to sort of do a comparison between Conan and Kvothe from from the Patrick Rothfuss. Oh, yeah, that would be cool. Because they, they mm-hmm. both are, are very good at what they do and and total badasses, um, and they sort of know it. They, you know, they, they walk yeah. with a swagger. But uh, I, I don't know. I, I think it would be an interesting character study. It would be cool because they and really like the way that the the Rothfuss books are unfolding. You're getting different parts of Kavoth's life and seeing how this legend is is being created around this person. It's very much a story about stories that are being told, mm-hmm. uh, and and so you see different aspects of this character that are represented in different uh, nuggets as the as the the epics unfolding. And so in that way, yeah, there's a lot of comparisons you can make to the way Conan's. Uh, represented over his over Howard's stories. Yeah, I think so. Cool. Okay, John. Uh, oh, we've already did John. Josh, what's your one thing? Okay, I'll keep it short because uh, we've we've been one thinning for a little while. But uh, I have been watching Marco Polo on Netflix Instant. So, but again, I have a similar one thing <laughs> to another Chromecaster. Um, but it's it's a Netflix original TV show. They just uploaded it, I think, right around Christmas or just after Christmas. And it's sort of a historical fiction uh, account of Marco Polo's life with um, uh, Kublai Khan in in Mongolia and the the court intrigues and and battlefield uh, uh, scenarios and, and maneuverings uh, that that go along with it. I think it's Netflix's uh, sort of attempt to cash in on the Game of Thrones hype. Uh huh. Um, I, I'm only up to about episode five or six. I haven't completed the series yet. I will. I, I like it enough to watch the whole thing. But the there's a, a trailer, and it's interesting to me that this is the first time this has ever happened. I was watching something else, and the episode that I was watching, some TV show, went off. And then this instead of showing the next episode on the 360, it popped up a preview of Marco Polo. And it was like a minute long or something, just a, a trailer. And I was like, well, that looks pretty cool. I'll watch that. And I think the trailer is a little misleading. It's so far, it's, it's, n- <laughs> it's not nearly as action packed as the trailer makes you think it will be. Um, it's not nearly as, as intense, I think, as Game of Thrones is. Um, and I would also say it's not as good if you, if you hold Game of Thrones first season alongside uh, Marco Polo's first season. It's, I don't think it's quite as good. Gotcha. But it is certainly very pretty. Uh, there's there's a lot of of cool stuff happening. Costumes are are pretty neat. Music's pretty good. There's uh, Blind Kung Fu Master, and I'm all about that. Um, so, and Jeff, I know you mentioned that you had been watching uh, Marco yeah, Polo. I, I did. I haven't I haven't finished either. I think I'm about eight or nine. Okay. So eight or nine. There about so I'm a little little further further along than you. Um, yeah, that's what's fun about. It. I mean, I'm a sucker for any costume act, you know, adventure drama. Yeah, um, they'll, they'll suck me in, you know, with any of them. And you're right. I mean, it's not as good as some of the others, but it, I mean, it's Netflix. It's not HBO, right? You know, yeah. they, you know. I mean, so and this is sort of their first foray, you know, into this type of thing. And you're right. This is sort of the new genre, the you know, the pay cable, you know, historical costume drama with lots of sex and action, and you know, 
Uh, it probably started with Rome, even with HBO, even really before, that was probably even before Game of Thrones. Yeah. But, uh, you know, this, I, I love that, you know, they, it, it's a mix of that sort of thing with a kung fu movie. Yeah. As well. I mean, there's a lot of, you know, there, there's a lot of that in there. And, uh, you know, I, it's fun. I, you know, I was looking up on Rotten Tomatoes and it's gotten terrible reviews. I know. The critics are just slamming it. And, and yeah, it's, I, I mean, yeah, you know, it's hype. You know, it's not Game of Thrones, but it's not that bad. I no. Think. I, I've been enjoying it. Um, you're right. It's slower pace. It's not more, you know, there's a lot more intrigue and political, you know, goings on, but, uh, I don't know. I've been enjoying it. It's well acted for sure. Um, yeah. Um, and I don't get the ratings. I, I don't get the hate for the show. It's weird. No. Uh, is it in the same ballpark as like House of Cards or anything or? Uh, you know, I think House of yeah. Cards is something special. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's not, it's not, it's not as good as House of Cards. Yeah, okay, no, okay. but it's, I, I think it's as good as Orange is the New Black. Yeah. Um, yeah. And in some ways it's cooler because the, the sets are so big. The, you know, the scenery is so pretty. Uh, it's, the Kung it's, Fu is Kung Fu. The Kung Fu is yeah, Kung, yeah. It, there is certainly way more Kung Fu in Marco Polo than in Orange <laughs> is the New Black. Uh, <laughs> uh, uh, but I think it's comparable to some of the, the, the shows that Stars has been doing, you know, like Spartacus and, you know, some of those kind of things. It's, it, it's you know, it, it's at that level, I think. Yeah. Um, you know, it's not HBO, but then what is? Yeah. So, so if, if anyone else has been watching Marco Polo, let us know what you think. Yeah. Uh, I'd be interested to, to hear some other perspectives. Uh, my wife sort of gave up on it, but uh, hmm. I, I, I'm going to stick with it, I think. And that's one thing, one thing. We, we've got to record some kind of transition. <laughs> the, 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 the ending and beginning of one thing is so abrupt. <laughs> you know, enough of the, the, the whiskey and the one thing. Let's get into the story. Yeah, so tonight's story is The Moon of Skulls. Luke, you usually have publication information. Yeah, I scribbled down here that this came out in Weird Tales in June and July of 1930. So okay. this is another, you know early early story within the Howard canon relative to when the Conan stuff started coming out. Yeah, and I think it's important to remember that that these Solomon Kane stories are pre-Conan. And one thing that I, I hope comes out during this discussion is I noticed a lot of sort of proto I don't I don't know what I, I don't want to say proto Conan, but some some ideas that were later expanded in some of the Conan stories. Yeah, yeah. Seeds of a lot of a lot of those things that we see in the the, the barbarians' tales. Yeah. All right. Go yeah, absolutely. And Jeff, now now that we have a Howard Scholar with us, if we say anything out of line, please cor- correct us. <laughs> correct, correct us immediately. Um, no, Mark Finn what, hits us. Hey, one of one of the fun things about listening to you guys is hearing you guys, you know, discovering some of the things that we've been talking about for years. You guys discovering it for the first times. You know, on your own, you know, and, and, and discussing some of these same themes that you know we've all argued over for years. It's great. I, I'm enjoying it. So, so how um, many how many times would you say? Oh, <laughs> yeah, that's very kind. Thank you. So, Jeff, how many times would you say that you've uh, that you've read Moon of Skulls? Is this something that you've that you've checked out like multiple times over the years? Oh yeah, I, I yeah, I have no idea how many times. I've plenty. I mean, I've r- written articles. Right. Right. Know, about, you know, about the story. So not just read it, but unpacked it, dissected it, you know, looked at his sources for the story, you know, those kinds of things. I mean, so deconstructed it, you know, you know, almost to the point where it's, 
it's, it's almost hard to enjoy it. <laughs> to break it down so much. But, but this is a fun story. I love this story. It, it's a little wacky, you know, but it's, uh, you know, this is Howard, uh, trying to do, uh, Burroughs, you know, to some degree and H. Ryder Haggard. You know, this is his first foray into the lost city in the jungle, you know, theme that you'll see later in the Conan stories. You know, this is, you know, when he, he first really you know, plays with this idea. You know, this is, uh, this is Tarzan and, uh, Opar. You know, this is, uh, H. Ryder Haggard and, uh, and she and, and that, you know, that genre. Um, and this is Howard playing with that and putting his own spin on, uh, which, you know, he often does when he borrows something from somebody else and gives it his own Howardian twist. Yeah. So, so we open. We open. We open. It's, it's the jungle. The, the, <laughs> the we have our, our, our man in black. He's, uh, he's sort of swathing through, through the jungle and there's this, this dark shadow that's, you know, falling over him. So the symbolism is just like, just dripping off the page, right? Just even from the, the first, the first paragraph. Yeah. And we know this is, this is Solomon Kane, but his name is not mentioned for several pages, right? Yeah. Just, yeah. That's, I thought that was pretty interesting. And he, as always, is doggedly on some mission. He's, he will let nothing get in his way. He approaches some, some type of cliff or mesa, it seems. He's going to climb to a, an upper level of, of this plateau above the jungle. Um, and it, it made me a little nervous when he started leaving. Some, some of his weapons and supplies and, and personal <laughs> effects behind, right? Like, uh, we just got done talking about D and I would have been like, no, we got to keep the, keep the, <laughs> keep the plus one sword, right? Keep, yeah. keep all the healing potions, the cure light wounds, everything. You got to keep all that. Yeah. He's like, I got to travel light. So he scales, he scales this cliff after dropping like his musket and one of his, one of his, uh, one of his pistols, uh, and, and numerous other things that would probably have been helpful. Yeah. Uh, some, something, somebody, Tosses a massive rock down at him that he very narrowly avoids. He gets up to the top of this, this tropical precipice, this cliff. Uh, and what does he see? Well, the crazy thing is he climbs this cliff at night. So right. he can't see anything, right? Like th- this is, even though we're out in the open, this is, I think, very claustrophobic feeling. You know, the, the general yes. sense of the jungle sort of closing in on you or the forest closing in on you and, and, you know, clinging to the side of this, this wall and something gets thrown down on you. Um, it hits him in the shoulder. It doesn't knock him down though. And eventually he makes it to the top. Yeah. He, uh, he sees a shape that looks human up ahead. He comes up closer. Uh, it's a, a corpse that's kind of, uh, spiked up that's pointing off in the direction that he just came from. The, message is pretty clear get your ass get out, out of here. here yeah uh and and soon See, after I, I, I love that scene too because in a way what this is this is sort of a twisted crucifixion right yeah you know i mean the, the, the symbolism here too you know whether howard was doing that intentionally or not you know you have this you know uh you know insanely devout christian character right and you know here is this sort of twisted version you know of a crucifixion there you know, it's a very cormac mccarthy kind of scene oh, i love yeah. that you know, bad time. <laughs> no, that's that's awesome. Please, please yeah. do that. <laughs> you know, this gruesome corpse nailed to a tree. You know, pointing the you know, go back the way you came. But does he? No, he doesn't. Of course not. This is all <laughs> no. Yeah, no, he he's not going to let that stand in his way. And eventually, he encounters 
a a large native to to the continent, right? Yeah, this this tribal man. He looks like he's uh, is he a chieftain, something like that. He's he looks higher up. You get in the the, the kind ranks. of assumes that of him. Yeah, yeah. and this from the description, I guess you know, not knowing anything else about this culture or these people, you could assume that this person is somebody pretty important. So old Solomon, you know, we get a little bit of exposition here that explains the story, gives us just enough to know like what his mission is. He's going after the vampire queen of Nagari yeah. for some for some mission that we don't quite understand, but that's that's what he's going after. Uh the chieftain's like, you know, few few can walk that path, you know, you're not gonna you're not you gonna succeed. See, you were fine. None <laughs> return. Uh, and and the, the the chieftain says, Okay, yeah, tag along, you know, I'll take you to her, wink wink. Kane sort of walks alongside him because he's scared to walk in front of the fellow. Uh more of the tribesmen sort of fall in suit. They get to this really cool set piece where you have this this stone walkover sort of bridge, right? Yeah. Oddly. But of course, this being Howard, nothing can go very easily. So he's quickly <laughs> ambushed on this this skinny rock bridge. Yeah, you see this coming though, right? I yeah. mean, you know, these Absolutely. guys are the conversation they're having. There's a sort of, you know, it, it's almost a duel of words. You know, as as they're walking along, you know, you know this is coming. Everyone knows it's coming. Solomon Cain knows Solomon knows they're going to attack him. Everyone knows this, and it's all about who's going to make the first move and when's it going to happen. Who's going to draw? You know, I mean, you get the feel that this is all, this is a, you know, a, a shootout, you know, Western style. You know, it's whoever, you know, you're sitting there, you're staring, who's twi- you're twitching a little, whoever's going to make that first move, bam, and then it's going to happen. Yeah. You know, and you get that feel as they're walking along, you know, you're sparring a little bit verbally. Uh, you know, and I like that. That's that sort of Western influence there. I think you get that. Despite kind of the, the African tableau, I definitely got a, a Western vibe from this part where you could hear the Clint Eastwood music and see yeah. Solomon Kane's eye kind of twitching. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. And, and so, uh, the, our, our chieftain basically says, uh, this is the border of Nakari's realm. And this is also where people die if they don't bring any presents, <laughs> right? No, no <laughs> gifts equals death. And that's when, that's when everything goes down, you know, much like we've become sort of accustomed to the, the fight is very fast, very raw. And, uh, it's, you know, it could have ended worse, I suppose, but it doesn't end very well for our hero. Yeah. So Kane plummets off of the, the bridge, uh, with one of the tw- uh, tribesmen, Sort of with him, mm-hmm. uh, thankfully, the tribesman breaks Solomon Kane's fall. He doesn't fall the, all the way down to the bottom, which he can't see, but rather hits like a shelf that's just a little ways down. So, so uh, old Mister Kane hits the hits the shelf, and he is presumed dead by the tribes uh, tribes people, which head you know back into back into the the hinterland. Yeah, back into Nigari. Yeah, Jeff. You've done a lot of research on this tale in particular. The verses of poetry that sort of prelude each chapter. Can you tell us anything about that poem or, or those verses? Well, I'm not an expert on, on Chesterton, but this is G.K. Chesterton, who was one of uh, Howard's favorite poets. Okay. Um, and he was a he was a Christian poet, and that was you know, was sort of known for that. You know, kind of like C.S. Lewis later would be known as a you know Christian fantasist and would incorporate you know Christian allegory into his work. Uh, and, and Chesterton uh, did the same. And uh, you know, Howard was a big fan of him, and so it does seem appropriate 
you know, that he would choose Chesterton for Solomon Kane, you know, for that reason. Um, you know, I'm, I'm not much, you know, poetry is not my forte. Uh, so I'm not a huge Chesterton uh, expert by any means. Um, but, uh, you know, that's, that's sort of what's going on here. I think, you know, he's, he's chosen Chesterton specifically, you know, because he is a, a poet who has these Christian themes, you know, strongly, uh, you know, pervading his work. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. So other than that, you know, I don't, don't know that much about the specific poem, but, but it fits, you know, they, yeah. they fit really well. And so, so now chapter two, the people of the stalking death. <laughs> I love that sub, that title. I know. <laughs> so Kane survives the fall. He, like Luke said, he lands on, on some, some cliffs, some shelf that was, you know, uh, projecting outwards underneath this natural bridge. And what now? I mean, he's on this bridge. He's, or I mean, I'm sorry, he's on this cliff. What, what's he going to do? So he strikes up, uh, flint and steel, right? And gets a, a bit of light. Is that right? Uh, mm-hmm. and sort of finds a, a crevasse, a, a little cave that's, that's here on this shelf. And he just sort of heads into the mountain, uh, into, into the dark lands. He's going into the lands of Nagari, right? Yeah. And, uh, you know, is spooked by some bats. He comes along, uh, but he, he's making it to the other side into this, this forbidden land. Do you, I know you're reading this on the Kindle. Do you have the Gary Gianni illustrations? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. There's a really great illustration on page 110 of the Solomon Cain, uh, the Savage Tales of Solomon Cain Del Rey mm-hmm. edition with a, a gigantic Medusa with a gigantic snake, uh, just feeding people to it. <laughs> <laughs> It's uh, yeah. I it's, was it's really intrigued by this description of wandering through the cave. I thought it was really creepy, uh, really well written on Howard's part, and kind of evocative to me in terms of, uh, man, now I can't remember it. That Howard story where it was kind of inspired by his Carlsbad Caverns experience. Mm-hmm. I know this is well before that experience with uh, Truett Vincent, I believe, but yep. kind of the same uh, creepy scary cave experience almost. Yeah, I love, um, and I love how he interprets, you know, everything as Satan, right? Yes. Um, <laughs> you know, everything has a biblical interpretation for it. Um, and that's the thing, you know, that's a theme that really runs throughout these stories. You know, he tries to, all of these things he, he encounters, he tries to explain through the lens of his, his Judeo-Christian cosmology, right? Whether it fits or not, he tries to shoehorn it in to make it fit. Um, you know, and, and here he sees, uh, he sees these two eyes, two yellow eyes there, and uh, you know, which he interprets as you know, it's the eyes of Satan or whatever. And of course, it, it ends up being a snake, you know, because this is Howard, right? It's got to be a giant snake <laughs> somewhere, right? Of course, you know. Uh, but uh, you know, so that you know, he has to deal with the snake, gets rid of that. Uh, you know, this is this is this is a great dungeon crawl. But to get back to the D and D, yeah, absolutely reference. I think this is all really interesting that he interprets it through that Judeo-Christian lens too, because Howard was not necessarily super religious, right? Uh, no, not he, at all. He, no, not yeah, at all. He went to church, I guess, at one point in his life, but he did uh, not view be, the world only the same because way. of a girl. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, sure. I mean, that happens. Yeah, um, you know, but yeah, no, he he was not at all. He was he he self-identified as agnostic. Um, he had you know. I think he, he, he was never willing to call himself an atheist the way that Lovecraft did. He, he always tried to sort of 
I think, keep things open. He had an interest in uh, Eastern philosophy and reincarnation and those sorts of things. Um, um, you know, sort of early 20, you know, like I said, he, you know, he read theosophy and those kind of things. He, he didn't necessarily believe in all of that, but he was interested in exploring, you know, other ideas about spirituality and, and, and these ideas. He was very open to these sorts of things. He kind of didn't really rule anything out or rule anything in, as it were. But he was definitely very suspicious and cynical about Christianity and organized Christianity. And, you know, that's really a lot of what I, I think uh, the Solomon King stories are really all about for him, you know, is, is exploring, you know, that idea and him uh, sort of giving a uh, almost a satirical take on it. Yeah, you like know. he's feeling it all out. He's trying to figure he is out feeling it all Christianity, out. I feel, in these stories. You know? and, and, you know, he really did enjoy the Old Testament actually, as literature and as, you know, um, as an adventure story. You know, he really enjoyed the, you know, the stories of, you know, Saul and, you know, and Solomon and that period, you know, and so, you know, obviously you get the name Solomon. And, um, you know, so, you know, he enjoyed, you know, and, and those stories are, uh, you know, sort of proto-fantasy, proto-mythology, you know, very much so. That That is yeah. you know, heroic fantasy in a sense, heroic mythology. Uh, and he appreciated that, in those terms, and you know, borrowed elements you know, from those stories, um, not from a religious perspective, but from a literature perspective. That's really uh, cool to so, hear because I I remember feeling yeah. that way as a boy as well. Oh, that yeah. when you sure. read the Old Testament, it was almost this adventure story, um, way more than the the New Testament, which was much right. more you know like oh you let them smack both your cheeks and all that kind of stuff. In the Old <laughs> Testament, right. you know, shit happens like people yeah. die. <laughs> <laughs> Vengeance, really? Vengeance is, yes. is a big part of it. Yeah. Exactly. You know, and it's a big part of these stories. You know, Solomon Cain is very much Old Testament. You know, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And cool yeah, stuff. yeah. Well, I'm, Josh, you should lead us further into the story. I believe. <laughs> okay, okay. Before we get well, off on tangents. <laughs> well, we'll get off on lots of tangents, but we'll, we'll save that for later. <laughs> <laughs> um, so Cain makes it through this uh, this short dungeon crawl that that he uh, finds himself in, and comes out the other side and looks into this this enormous chamber. This enormous sort of, I, I, it, it boggles the mind, the size and scale of this room, right? Would, would you say that they are almost cyclopean? I, I would use the word cyclopean <laughs> here. I believe that's uh, apropos. Monumental, uh, structures. Yeah. With scales that just, it, it blows your mind. You yeah. can't imagine the opulence, the, the size. It's, it's very kingly. Right. Mm -hmm. It must have been built by giants, I think he says at, at one point. Is it Euclidean? Uh, he doesn't, <laughs> he doesn't, yeah, he doesn't say that it's non-Euclidean. So at least I guess it makes sense I think to it the is. human mind. I think it must make uh, sense, but it's just so big. Yeah. Right. It couldn't have been made by the people that he sees before him. No. He, he reaches that conclusion. Yeah. No, they're tiny by comparison. Um, and there, is this this raised sort of uh, dais or throne, right? This platform, and upon uh, this this platform is a figure that causes Cain's uh, pulse to quicken, right? And and probably makes him experience a number of conflicting emotions, <laughs> right? Revulsion, uh, admiration, maybe even lust. Yeah, it's, I was gonna say his pulse quickens for a multitude of reasons. Yeah, it's not all bad. Yeah, he's and some in, of it's biological. I, I can I can imagine in this one moment he has several different conflicting thoughts about uh, Nakari, the vampire queen. Right, that's what we're led to believe, and mm. you know she she 
evidently uh, is the demon queen of a demon city whose monstrous lust for blood had set half a continent shivering. So there have been some tales spoken about Nekari. And this description of her, I couldn't help but think of Queen of the Black Coast and and our, our first glimpse of... Oh man, what's wrong with me? I can't think. of of belief. Yeah, yeah. Of, and our first glimpse of belief. Yeah, I I I was thinking similarly, and you get uh, as the story progresses a lot of a lot of the similar notes, right? The things that are laid before Solomon Cain that we saw Conan uh, encounter with belief in 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 the the Queen of the Black Coast. Yeah. Um. Now, I think that uh, Nakari and Belit are not analogous completely. I, I don't think that they're exactly sort of filling the same niche in right. in their respective stories. Um, but I think that, that, and I may be wrong here, that this is uh, uh, an early sort of example of a, a really strong, really sexy woman in a Howard story. What yeah, do you think? absolutely. Um, one of the first, probably. Um, you, it, you Right before this, you really... This is one of the first stories where you even really start to get any kind of sexual tension at all in a Howard story. Um, it may not entirely be a coincidence, given the timing of where this is written. Maybe that's something we can get into later. But, okay. uh, um, you know, but yes, you start to see this for the first time in you know, the late 20s, early 30s. You, know, you finally start to see sex starting to come into the stories. You know, he had, uh, he had written, um, uh, the first call story, you know, right before this, although it was, it was published after Red Shadows, but, uh, you know, call was very much a sexless character. Um, the early Bram McMorn stories, he was pretty much a sexless character. Um, but beginning with this story, you start to get sexual tension for the first time in our stories. Uh, so he's, he's playing with that. He's feeling more comfortable about bringing that theme in to his stories. Uh, and you know, this is sort of the beginning of that for sure. You know? How interesting that occurs with a Puritan white character and a, a black <laughs> demon queen in this story. That is extraordinarily uh, interesting. And it's also probably, it may not be a coincidence. We can bring that up later. Let's, <laughs> let's, let's move on this way. I'll, I'll throw this up now. Okay. Okay. We'll, we'll talk about this later. Okay. Yep. So yep. we, we get uh, introduced to uh, Nakari and we see one of the uh the guys from the uh, uh i guess the welcoming committee um uh-huh. for Solomon Kane and the guy who we we assumed i guess was the chief sort of steps forward and Nakari is pretty furious because you know this is the first white man to ever come here and what did you guys do what happened and he he says look he didn't have a gift he didn't bring any sort of tribute whatsoever and you said if if people show up <laughs> And don't bring tribute, then you th- you guys throw them off the natural bridge. Protocol and, was not- <laughs> <laughs> and so we were just doing what we're, we were just following orders. She is not happy. She, you know, she's like, you've got a brain, use it. Come on. <laughs> that poor dude, he pays with his life, right? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and just, just sort of as a demonstration of her power, he, he just gets run through with multiple spears, right? Yeah. Pin cushion. Yeah. Very effectively, in just two pages, Howard demonstrates how powerful Nakari is, not just in terms of her bearing, but also in terms of her, you know, command of her subordinates. 
part of this uh, part of the story that interested me is that we're talking about Cain. He's watching all this uh, play out in front of him, kind of from a secret passageway, right? He he can see over all these folks. They don't know where he is. They don't know where he's wandering through necessarily. And he's using these walkways and kind of hidden passages, these Scooby-Doo-esque kind of things that haven't been used since the Atlanteans ran things in this city. Uh, I thought that was kind of kind of cool, kind of a cool thing for Howard to point out. Kind of racist, I guess we could talk about that too. Sure. Uh, that that the, the white man's the only one that can figure out how to work the secret doors, but uh, he's definitely watching this from a secret hideaway. Yeah, he's safe enough, at least for the time being. So he's slipping around. He makes note of the the trap, the the secret door, and is able to slide through it. And and ultimately, he gets like to uh, uh, Nakari's inner sanctum, right? And and the prize that Kane has been seeking is before him. And it's a lady, a young lady, Marilyn. Oh yeah, a young lady, <laughs> uh, a, a, a maiden fair, a maiden fair, <laughs> and uh, she she has no idea who Kane is, but Kane remembers her. And so I get the sense that she's in her teens somewhere. I can't yeah, remember if it was. Like, yeah, I can't yeah. remember if it actually mentions how long she's been taken from her family. But the the age and the drawings I don't think match up very well. The the woman that is it Gianni or Schultz? Which one that does these Gianni. drawings? Oh, Gianni. Uh, okay, this is Gianni. Okay. So the, the the woman that he draws, I think, is a little older and maybe more uh, developed. I guess I would say than the yeah. woman, the age, and the the text seems to indi- indicate. Well, you know, yeah, it, it, oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead, Jeff. No, it's okay. I was going to say, yeah, she she definitely gets the impression that she's a teenager, that she's uh, you know she was the daughter of a colleague of his, a friend of his, somebody he knew. That's um, a little, it's a little creepy on a you know, <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. Like she's she's uh the way it struck me, she's kind of a like a prepubescent girl when she's when she's captured. You know, she's she's truly virtuous and 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 a maiden through and through. But at this point, as we find out, like she's been uh used by by this this group for for a long period of time and while she's pure of heart she's seen and had to do a lot of things that were horrible and none of it's like explicit but the implicit statements are that this girl has been through hell like literally literally and so um i i I seem to remember that she was sold off by her uncle or a relative at least uh who thought that she would inherit some land and money that yeah. he rightfully should have. And so he yeah. sold her off into slavery and said, oh, she must have died at sea or something. Right. Um, and then begins this really long, very dis- detailed description of where she's been and who she's been with and who who her captors were. And yeah, like Luke said, she's been through the ringer. Yeah, and she's 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 been a slave through multiple multiple hands uh one thing to mention uh and and actually jeff you may know more about this or some of the guys here uh we we haven't talked about this beforehand but her name is is uh marilyn tafferel and one of our uh one of our listeners uh neil sent us an email uh, a few episodes back and said you know that's pretty close to helen taverell from Mm -hmm. uh the island of pirates doom uh and it seems like you know He's playing with those names, right? Oh, like, cool. <laughs> like there's, yep. he, he's he's using those. 
Yeah, there's another. Uh, John Tavril is a uh, is a, a boxing manager uh, oh. that appears in uh, Apparition of the uh, in the Prize Ring. Um, he's a narrator of that story. So yeah, that's a name that he uses. Tavril with a V rather uh-huh. than an F, you know. But again, you know, it's the same name. You know, it's etymologically the same. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that's a name that he, he uses, and Howard does that a lot. He's got a few of his favorite names, and he'll he'll use them over and over again. Um, you know, Costigan appears a number of times. Yeah. yeah. He likes the, so, the poetic, uh, right. names. Yeah. Yeah. So, so yeah, that's, Tavern was one that he uses. And, and so I don't know how much we want to go into details with, you know, where she's been or how Kane tracked her down, but he basically went from pirate to, to, you know, uh, more caravan to, you know, uh, somebody who said she is in Africa. Uh, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I think the- I think it's worth, it is worth briefly mentioning that the fact that you, he goes through this laundry list of all of the places and things that he's done. And as he's relating this, you can't help but think, wow, he's kind of obsessed. You know, yes. I mean, you know, that, and this, so I think this is important. I think this is Howard's, you know, clue to the reader that, you know, yeah, he's the protagonist. And yeah, he's there to rescue her, but you know something's not right about this guy. I've and actually because, been kind of disengaged know. from this story up until this point, where you start to see this like unforgiving, obsessed man right. who is chasing he's something he has nothing to do with. He's nothing he's crazed over it. He's insane. He just heard this one thing. Oh my God! Well, I have to spend the next three years tracking this girl down that I barely know to rescue her because I just have to. I yeah. killed a bad towel. I need to <laughs> yeah, bring man. a good one back to England. That, you know, yeah. you know, it's, yeah, exactly. I mean, it's a, just a, you know, just obsession. You know, I mean, so this is how we're telling you, yeah, okay, this is the protagonist, but he's kind of batshit crazy. Yeah. 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 The other thing that's cool about this chapter is Howard describes mm-hmm. Kane finally. I mean, we get, mm-hmm. we get some description of him, but this description, and this is on page 127 of the Delray. Um, he was a man born out of his time, a strange blending of Puritan and Cavalier with a touch of the ancient philosopher and more than a touch of the pagan. Yeah. Uh, so Cain himself. Though, though he would deny it. Exactly. Called him, right. You know, and yeah, might, that's... and might shoot you or fight you <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> yeah. and follow you for years. Right. Um, so, so this is how we're telling you that some of the things that you've been picking up on in the earlier stories and wondering about, you know, yeah, you're on the right track. You know, yeah, he, he's, um, you know, the, the things that he's, he's seeing, he's, uh, you're trying to explain them away in terms of a Judeo-Christian outlook. Um, you know, but that's, you know, that's not really what's going on, you know, in, in reality, that's just his lens, you know, that he sees everything through. And, uh, He's actually a little bit more comfortable in this world than he, even he would like to admit. Uh, you know, he's a, he's something of a, a throwback. He's something uh, of an atavistic figure. You know, himself. You know, he he feels this primal calling to Africa. You know, and this you know that that sort of primal man that's in him. You know, this allows him to do that, even though he can't admit it. You know, he's he's really a part of this world. This, you know, this, you know, yeah, kind of and absolutely with with the way that the 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 drumbeat of Africa sort of right. resounded through his yeah. soul. 
uh, with with our previous readings. Oh yeah, in red yeah. red shadows. Yeah, red shadows. Yeah, uh, I, I loved how you guys brought that out. That was that was very observant, and you know, absolutely, you guys are right on the money. I think that's very interesting to point out that he feels this pagan urge and this whole Howard verse kind of idea, this idea that everything's connected. It's weird to think that he feels the same feelings as Conan before we even get Conan, right? Technically, this right. this story exists before Conan. That's right. And, you know, this may be, you know, you've alluded to this, I think, in the Red Shadows podcast as well, the idea that. And this is maybe when you know Howard himself working out some of these ideas, um, and and that's true. He, he you know he was in the late twenties and years right before this and during this story, um, he himself was really starting to explore other philosophies and uh, spiritual ideas outside of Christianity, looking at Eastern philosophy and these kinds of things, and uh, you know and and also atheism and, and nihilism and, and other ideas, um, and so you know. To some degree, you know, Solomon Cain is, is like Howard working these things out. Um, you know, he's here. He, he was, you know, growing up in rural Texas, where he's you know, basically gotten the Southern Baptist version of the universe, as such as it is, you know, his whole life. And you know, he, he realizes that's not a good enough explanation for me. You know, that doesn't explain everything. And he's he's himself has already moved past that. Now he's got a character who is slowly from story to story, working through that himself. And you'll see this, I think, as you go, as you continue to work through the series, you know, this will happen more and more. It gets to the point where, you know, he's you know, encountering more of a Lovecraftian universe and still trying to shoehorn it into his Judeo-Christian cosmology, and it becomes harder and harder to do you know, <laughs> as he cool. goes on. Be- you know? Because of all that, would you say that Kane kind of is the more personal character compared to Conan? To Howard, I, that I think, I think so. You, okay. you know, it was it was a very decamping. You know, decamp was it was big on the idea that you know Conan was sort of Howard's wish fulfillment kind of thing, and, and that's that's really not not the case. I, I, Solomon Kane, to some degree, yes, I think so. I think in this sense, um, I don't think he's really the most personal character for Howard. Um, you know, I don't want to get too far on a tangent, but I actually think that the uh, the boxer Steve Sailor Steve Costigan okay. is probably the, the closest figure to Howard, and which is you know that those are actually you know, comedy stories, as humorous stories, which is very different. Yeah, uh, you know, but uh, but I do think that in this case, you know, this idea of working through religion and working through these things, I think that yeah, that's that's some of what he was going through or had just gone through himself, you know, and, and sort of rejected some of these ideas himself. So. Jeff, I know you just said, I don't want to get off on a tangent, but I'm going to ask you a question that is <laughs> sure, going to be man. a tangent. Uh, so in the Conan stories, Crom, I think, it represents a very, uh, I don't, I don't know if it's agnostic or atheist sort of deity, right? Yeah, like he's sure, there. Yeah. He, he gives you all the tools you need, but don't call on him because you don't want him to, you don't want to draw his attention because that would be bad. Yeah, and, that would be bad. And, uh, you know, maybe deist even, um, but, uh, but, uh, from a but a very cynical deist, yeah, yeah, you know, um, and you know, it, truthfully, you know, that's how a lot of um, you know religion was in the ancient world, uh, pre-Christianity. You know, the idea of a benevolent god was actually kind of a new thing <laughs> with with Christianity. You had you know the the, the, uh, the Greek gods, the Egyptian gods, the Near Eastern gods. You know, they, they might do something for you if you do something for them. Yeah. You know, or if you, you know, sacrifice properly and, you know, quid pro quo. 
Uh, but for the most part, you know, you know, you're almost better off with them not paying attention to you because they're just as liable to, you know, screw you over as do something nice for you. Yeah. Uh, you know, and I think Howard tapped into that. He got that. He was well first in, in ancient mythology and ancient religion. So with with Solomon Cain's lens on the the Ju- Judeo Christian ideology, it, right. I, I guess I guess what I'm trying to say is it seems as though. Crom does as much for Conan as God does for Solomon Cain. Yeah, but nothing. But exactly. But Solomon Cain <laughs> uh, is this agent for his God, whereas Conan is, you know, sort That's of right. a, you know, here's Crom, and I, I believe in him, and I, I know, I know he's there, but it's better to not call on him because that would, that might be bad. In, in some ways, it's kind. Of, that's it's an interesting. That's a really interesting point. And in some ways, it's kind of the opposite, right? Where you have, you know, in both cases, you have, um, you know, there's no indication. Let's put it this way: in the Conan stories, that Crom actually exists, right? There is no proof that he actually exists at all. Uh, we get some hints that maybe Mitra is a real god, maybe yeah. Set is a real god. There's no indication. Maybe. Maybe, maybe that's kind of ambiguous. Yeah. You know? Um, you know, intentionally so, but there's no indication that the Quam is real. Just like there's no indication that that Yahweh, the you know Judeo-Christian God, is real in Solomon Cain's stories. And but the way they approach him is different. You know, you know in both cases they're kind of hands off. But uh, Solomon Cain sees himself. You're right. He sees himself as an agent, uh, you know, of God, of Judeo-Christian God. He has his uh, you know avenging angel on earth, essentially. Yeah. You know, here, you know, to do retribution. You know. Uh, and occasionally starts to question it, but then, but then immediately puts that out of his mind. No, 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 no. I'm, I'm not here to, to do this. Um, you know, whereas, you know, Conan's exactly the opposite. You know, he, he accepts him. Yeah, sure. He's real. Um, but just doesn't worry about it. Whereas Cain does start to question, you know, okay. because he is supposed to be an agent of God and he starts to question it. No, no, I don't question. I'm, I'm, I'm still here, but it's there. It's, it's in the back of his mind that. You know, maybe something's not right. Maybe, maybe my worldview doesn't explain this. Maybe I shouldn't be going around following people for three years, tracking them down and <laughs> killing them in cold blood out of revenge. Maybe I'm not supposed to do that. No, no. Yes, I am. Yes, yes I, I am. am. <laughs> you know, awesome. That comes back to something Josh and I kind of discussed through text message right. uh, yesterday or the day before about Uh-oh. is Solomon Cain a, a neutral good? This goes back to your D and D. Like it. Oh, that's a good question. What, what did you say, Josh? Oh, I, I said that maybe he he was lawful evil, but he worships yeah. a a good deity, or at least yeah. a, at least a neutral sort of deity, because he does murder, and murder is bad, right? In the yeah. in the Gary Gygax uh, mm-hmm. sort of sort of <laughs> worldview. I was I was going to say something like lawful neutral, but okay. yeah, maybe, maybe lawful evil. Uh, yeah, I could buy that. You know. Uh, and, Trending that way, anyway. Yeah, I, I don't know. Whereas, whereas Conan is is more neutral good. I, I think he has a or even chaotic good. Or even yeah, maybe chaotic. Is that what I said, John? Cha- I would, chaotic. I would, I would, I would say chaotic. Okay. Trending towards neutral throughout his career as yeah. he becomes more civilized, you know, by being in civilization. Yeah, or at I, least learns how to operate. You yeah. know, at least at least he doesn't immediately kill people when he <laughs> perceives an insult. Judges, right? You know, split judges' skulls, and you know, I'm sick of this. <laughs> <You know? laughs> uh, but but oh, anyway, he Conan would probably split our skulls by talking about this for for so long. Right. Let's get back on <laughs> tangent. It's your fault. No, it's no, it's good. Yeah, it's my fault, but it's good. It's it was uh, a good tangent. 
Um, You're welcome, listeners. (laughs) We're in this chamber with Marilyn, and and both she and Kane have outlined the the previous, you know, five years, three years, something like that. Uh, Marilyn's sort of exchange from slaver to king to pirate to finally she's here in uh, Nagari. And Kane outlines how he's tracked her down. And he asks, are you, are you guarded? And she's like, Oh yes. Oh yes. I'm, I'm watched constantly. And just then somebody comes in the door. Luke, who is it? Uh, well, it is Nakari, right? She's, she's entering. So, so Kane, uh, sweeps back behind a curtain. He's just sort of hanging out in my mind. Like you can see his feet underneath the curtain, something (laughs) like that. Uh, I guess it's not that obvious, but, but regardless, uh, the, the vampire queen comes in, uh, and, but she knows he's there. Like her eyes he lock him. Yeah. <laughs> I was gonna, I was gonna say that, but then I held it back. <laughs> so, so there's a little bit of an exchange, uh, but then she's like, oh, somebody's in here. Eyes lock over on where Solomon Kane is. She shuffle, like they come up, uh, and Kane's exposed. Yeah. One thing I thought was interesting is, uh, Nakari calls Marilyn Mara. She, she's given her a different name, or at least is using a uh, uh, an abbreviated form and ad, uh, a pet name. Yeah, 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 yeah. You know. Um, and so she's she's asking, "Are you are you ready to be the the bride of the master? Uh, how many girls have given their lives for this? This is awesome. You're gonna love it. You're gonna love this horrible sacrifice that we're gonna put you through." <laughs> um, just then, Nakari, like Luke said realizes oh something's not right somebody else is here she she has these preternatural senses about her surroundings and she just knows whether whether she heard Kane gasp because he was uh, once again gazing upon her at least mostly nude form or or at, you know conflicted emotions about how evil but how hot she is at the same time you know she realizes he's there and my favorite part of this story i think is that she is positioned in such a way that she's, I, I guess, near all of these different ropes, sort of like a James Bond villain, um, or a Scooby Doo villain, maybe more, more so. And so she, <laughs> she pulls a rope and the curtains move and there's Kane. But luckily he's drawn a pistol and he's got it aimed at her heart. Yeah. And she doesn't know precisely what a pistol is, but she knows enough to know that it's a weapon. Yeah. Uh, and, and there's this little showdown, uh, and, Kane is taken. That's that's the bottom line, yeah. right? To sort of get through to the next chapter, like he's he's taken. The next rope right. over is the trapdoor rope, right. <laughs> and it's so, fairly generic, you know. Well, but it works. <laughs> I mean, it is, it is. It moves the story forward. It does yeah. what it does what it's supposed to do. And so Kane falls through the trapdoor into darkness and gets clubbed over the head and finds himself in a dungeon cell, uh, shackled to the wall, and Nakari comes in. I think this part is pretty cool, and and if you guys don't mind, I'd like to talk about it a little bit. No, go mm-hmm. for it. Absolutely. Very briefly, Nakari offers Solomon Kane the kingdom, right? The keys to the kingdom. All you have to do is subjugate yourself before me, swear you'll love me, swear swear you'll serve me, and you could be the king of of everything. And Kane, for a minute, is sort of tempted, right? He, he's mm-hmm. like, she's pretty hot, and it would be good to be the king. Yep. <laughs> but but no, like Jeff said, he comes back to his senses. No, I've, I've got a mission. I've got to get Marilyn back. And so he says, no, you give me Marilyn back and I'll I'll just walk out of here with her and I won't kill you and your whole army. 
<laughs> which is pretty badass. <laughs> yeah. But this this sort of struck me as sort of a last temptation of Christ sort of thing, right? Solomon Cain wavers a little bit. He th- he he sort of for a minute, for just a yeah. minute. And you guys don't tell me you wouldn't also. <laughs> of course. Well, and it's really a choice between the the virtuous maiden that he was questing for to to sort of rescue, and then you have, uh, you know the. The, the virtuous maiden versus sort of the whore kind of figure. Like she's, yeah. she's sultry slutty, like mm. all the way down to the <laughs> core, the way she's described, at least through Solomon's eyes, through these puritanical eyes. Uh, but she's, she's full on liberated, man. Like she's, you know, <laughs> she, she right. is, uh, from what we're led to believe, uh, sort of, uh, the shadow, uh, queen of, of much of the African continent. Like she's controlling, uh, broad expanses of, of the world. Right. Well, and, and I think this also goes back to what something that, that uh, John brought up earlier. There's also a racial dynamic to this um, that's very much at play here. Uh, you know, there is uh, this theme also of uh, miscegenation anxiety maybe here to some degree going on with this. Um, and, and I think this is very real. Uh, you know, I mean, clearly there's, there's this idea, and, and this was a theme that cropped up in the pulps quite a bit, right? Where you have this sort of dusky temptress, mm-hmm. okay? So there, there is a racist element to this as well, um, that's going on here. And, uh, you know, some of this, you start to see this theme in some of Howard's stories, beginning with this story. This is where you first see it, you know, here in 1930. You also see it in uh, Worms of the Earth a couple of years later and Black Keen and beyond that. These are stories I, I, I think you guys probably haven't read yet. But, Not yet, no. Uh, hopefully, hopefully you will and you'll, you'll see this. Um, you know, this is, you know, we, you, you guys touched on a little bit with Red Shadows, you know, the, the idea, the, you know, the racism that appears in some of these stories. And, uh, you know, it's a tough subject. You know, fans don't like to talk about it sometimes, but it's real. I mean, it's there. It is what it is, right? Um, you know, this is the early 20th century, you know, you know, it, it's in there. And, you know, Howard was playing with this, this idea. Um, you know, this was a stereotype too, um, of African Americans, uh, sexualized African Americans, you know, um, you know, highly sexualized. You know, that was often how they're both male and female were depicted in popular culture. Um, so he's playing with this, this idea a little bit. And, uh, you know, this is Howard himself, you know, who, you know, you know, he had the typical views of a, of a Texan in, in the 1920s. You know, he was, he was, you know, he was, he was racist, just like, you know, most everyone was at that time. Most every white person was, you know, in, in early 20th century America. Um, what's interesting, you know, we talked earlier about this is the first time you really start getting, uh, sexual themes in Howard's stories. The interesting thing is, this is about the time where Howard himself might have actually uh, gotten laid for the first time. Okay. <laughs> okay, so let's throw this out here, right? Um, in nineteen, in the late 1920s, he made a couple of trips, uh, um, sometimes with his friends, sometimes on his own, to some of the border towns uh, on the other side of the border in Mexico that were known as basically brothel towns. Okay. Uh, they were, they were called, uh, 
La zona de uh, tolerancia, or whatever, toleration zones, where brothels were legal. Oh. And one of these was Piedro Negras. We, we have postcards that he sent back to True Vincent from, from there, you know, with nothing written on the postcard, just the postcard from this town. You know, oh. Basically, like, enough, enough said, you know what I'm doing. Right? That is suggestive. That's wait, awesome. Wait. Oh, it's great. This is good stuff, right? And so... You know, there's, there's been, you know, over the years, a lot of people have wondered about Howard's sexuality. Did he ever even have sex? Was he ever, you know, I mean, you know, in actuality, yeah, he probably did. But it may very well be that his, his only sexual experiences were with Mexican prostitutes, right, in these border towns. And so here you have someone who, ha- yeah, isn't that crazy? <laughs> you know, so, so here you have someone who has these, you know, you know, racist views that he's trying to work out, and yet, you know, he's having sex with Mexican prostitutes. He's having, you know, and, and you know, he did have strong views against Mexicans. You yeah. Know, you know, he did. And so he himself, he, there's this contradiction within himself that he's having to deal with and working out, you know, at this time. And you start to see it in his stories a little bit. Um, and, you know, yeah, we don't know for sure that he's, but, you know, you didn't go to these towns for any other reason, basically. Yeah. You know, I mean, that's what, that's what young men in Texas did. You know, you went to these towns to get laid. You know, um, <laughs> you know, that so is interesting. It's, it's actually pretty fascinating. And nobody's really written this up yet. Um, it needs to be, it needs to be done. I mean, really needs to, you know, not just write this up and write up and, and see how it shows up in its fiction yeah. because it does. And it starts showing up as this, you know, him sort of working out these miscegenation things in his fiction. Yeah. You know, uh, should I be doing, you know, it's, it's funny. There's actually a conversation years later with his girlfriend novel and twice that she recounts in her memoirs. Where, uh, you know, she, they're having an argument about this idea, you know, of, of, you know, of, of, uh, you know, miscegenation. And, you know, she was very liberal minded and she was kind of, you know, chewing him out, you know, and he's like, well, you know, no, people shouldn't do that. People need to stay with their own, their own race and all that. And she's like, yeah, well, how come there's all these babies down there, you know, that are, you know, how come you white guys, you know, they're always having sex with you? Well, oh, you got to understand, you know, that's, you know, what, you know, men have needs and, you know, and you can tell that he's almost sort of, uh, you know, it's kind of a, you know, the lady doth protest too much kind of thing. Yeah. Where he, he's trying to, exp, you know, explain it away and you can tell he's sort of, uh, you know, well, uh, you know, you know, he's got kind of caught in his own contradiction. Um, you know, so it's an interesting thing. And this, you know, that's one of the reasons why these stories are fascinating. Um, you know, it's problematic as fans, you know, as modern fans, we read this stuff and it, you know, it, it's distasteful. You know, there's no two ways about it. Um, but it's a fascinating glimpse, uh, to into the culture of that time. And how people, you know, were dealing with these things, you know, you, you can really see in popular culture, you know, the expression of what was going on in, in real life. And, uh, you see that here in his stories, you know, the, I mean, the, it's a, it's a fascinating, you know, the, you know, the, uh, it's a fascinating dynamic that was going on and the racial tension that was going on in the country at the time, in the South at the time, in Texas at the time. And you see how we're dealing with it and you see him, Working that out in these stories, you know. I like and, that you said that, yeah, because you know, that's my impression of this racial problem, I guess we can call it that, with Howard, is that yeah, it he's is he's at he's at battle with himself. He's trying he's to figure out himself. how he feels about it. That's right. That's and exactly. This story felt more like that to me than some of the other ones we've read in the past. That yeah. he can't he can't put these things together that he's been that's taught right. and these things that he feels in terms of civilization and barbarism. And the things he's been told about 
minorities. He can't compromise those things together. He can't figure it out. And it, he's kind of working it out in his fiction. Yeah. Yeah. He's, he's struggling with it completely. You know, he's an intelligent guy, you know, but yet he's, he's, you know, like you said, he's been taught all these things. He's studied these. I mean, you know, you understand it. It's, it's really easy for people today to say, Oh man, Howard was a racist. Lovecraft was a racist. Well, yeah, sure they were. Of course they were. But you got to understand the, the culture at the time, racism wasn't just accepted. Racism was codified into law. Racism was institutionalized. I mean, it, that was the way it was. You know, I mean, it, it just, it was simply a part of, you know, our society at the time. And, you know, it, and in Texas, it was even more so. Uh, you know, I mean, it's easy for us to sort of say that, but for those of us that have grown up, you know, all of us have grown up, you know, post-civil rights movement, it, it, it's hard to even fathom what it must have really been like in Texas in the 1920s. You know, I mean, they were, you know, it was still leading the country in lynchings until the early 20s. You know, I mean, that was the world that Howard grew up in. I mean, it was... It was, you know, it was hardcore where it could literally cost you your life, you know? So, you know, to, 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 to go against the, the grain, you know? Um, and he actually, in that conversation with Novel and I was telling you about, that's what he told her. He's like, look, you know, look, you can tell this stuff to me, but for God's sakes, don't say this to anybody else here in town. You know, I mean, you, I mean, it will ruin you, you know, if not, they may kill you. You know, it's that serious. You know, don't say these things. So Howard himself, you know, he was, you know, he was an intelligent guy. And I do think he, you know, he was very, very complex in his thinking on these subjects. Uh, you know, he read a lot of the anthropological thought in the time, which was very racist. I mean, anthropology was a racist field you know, sure. at this time. I mean, it just was. The, the field was developed to classify people by race, you know. And, you know, so... You know, he, you know, he was, he was reading this stuff and, uh, working it out himself, incorporating it into his fiction, um, mixing in his own personal experiences, which maybe didn't gel with what he thought he was supposed to be feeling, you know? And that's what you start to see here. Well, she's attractive. Well, but I'm not supposed to be attracted to her. Yeah. You know, but I can't help it, but she is, you know? Uh, so there's more to the temptation. You know, you know, that there's more to it than that. You know, there's this idea, should I be doing this? You know? Um, and it's interesting. And you see it a lot actually in this poetry too. There's actually a lot of poetry around this period that deals with this scene quite a bit. And that's where he was probably, you know, a lot of it wasn't published. That was him working this stuff out on his own, you know, when he, in the, in the you know, privacy where he could, you know, I think write that's, about these things, you know. That's something we've talked a lot about as a, as the Chromecast is we want to do a, a poetry episode in the future because it seems oh, like be cool. <laughs> he worked out so many of his feelings in his poetry Definitely. and it reflected so much of his actual personality more so than even some of his stories. Oh, so I think it's wonderful to do that in the future. Yeah. So I, I hate to get off on that tangent, but I thought that was a very important thing. Yeah, you know? no, I, um, I, I think that's completely relevant. Yeah, and, and that's not a tangent. And we're at, at the point in the story. I mean, there have been uh, racist terms used in the text up yeah. to this point, but we're really getting into it whole hog. So I actually, I have a follow-up question just to throw sure. out to you guys, and I guess specifically to you, Jeff, uh, if you've had, uh, if you have more knowledge about this maybe than what we've read. But, okay, so so from here on, we're going to see Howard uh, describing uh, racism in a lot of different perspectives. Like there's a hierarchy here in terms of, in terms of civilization, but right. it's not a simple white versus black thing. There's racism uh, amongst 
uh, different people that are the color black, and then there's racism that, that Solomon Cain has inborn within himself. Uh, so I guess my question is, given that Howard is, is piecing up the pie and all the slices mm-hmm. are racist <laughs> in some form right. or fashion, like, can you speak to, or, or, or anybody, can you guys speak to, like, how mature that writing might be within the, the the context of all of the other literature that was coming out like were there other uh stories that were delving into uh deep racial groupings in the sort of theosophical uh, uh, uh atlantean cultures and i know that's what we're where we're yes. heading towards with the discussion right. absolutely uh, um to some degree uh, the, the theosophical stuff for sure um jack london who was a heavy influence on howard um you know, definitely went into the, you know, these ideas and, and, and he was notoriously racist himself. Uh, you know, Jack London, Call of the Wild fame, you know, so that's what he's famous for. But, um, he, he wrote, um, you know, he, he was a, a, one of Howard's favorite writers and, uh, he wrote, uh, was, he actually wrote quite a bit of, of speculative fiction. A lot of people don't realize this. Mm-hmm. Um, but he wrote, you know, several, you know, he wrote, uh, The Star Rover, which was a, a reincarnation story. Which you know heavily influenced Howard. Um, he wrote a caveman story beyond Adam. He wrote one that uh, uh, it's called the Red One, uh, which a few people realize, but it was actually a science fiction story. Uh, he wrote uh, dystopian stories, dystopian future, futuristic stories. Um, so uh, and, and London played up the race theme quite a bit, um, but not to the degree that Howard did. Um, one of the things that I, you know, one, one of the areas that I focus my research on is world building. And I like to talk about Howard as a, an anthropological world builder. Um, you know, Tolkien was a philological world builder, right? Uh, he built his worlds on language. Howard built his worlds on anthropology and not just anthropology, but 19th century racist anthropology, like I was talking about. Um, his world building was really the story of different races. Right. And uh, Howard used the word you know, for him. Races you know, had a broader meaning, almost the same way we would use ethnicity today. Um, it's all these stories of different groups of people and what happens to them throughout history and how they come in conflict, conflict with each other and they fight each other. You know, sometimes they they interbreed and they mix and they and they build civilizations and they fall and then they evolve and then they devolve and they you know they're always migrating and shifting and moving. And Howard's world building is following these races through time, these different groups, and telling their stories and how they interact through time over thousands of years. Um, and he, you know, his shared universe that he created, that's really the, the foundation for it, the matrix uh, for his shared universe, is a story of all of these races. Um, so does anybody do this to, his, to this degree? No, I don't think there is anyone. Well, it strikes me as, you know, there, there are a couple of things and I guess I'll, I'll, I'll say one of them, one of them right now. Like, you know, this is a, this is a racist story. Like my notes here say this is a racist story, but it's also like really deeply about slavery. Like this is a story that's more about slavery to me than race. Like we're introduced to it with Marilyn's experiences, like on a personal level, but ultimately where we go with this, is a story about slaves and slaves, uh, sort of, 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 uh, casting off their chains and, and reappointing right. the, the culture that, 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 
they has has constrained them and you get this this barbarous primitive sort of culture it's i don't know it, it seems like you know for for all of howard's uh racial viewpoints there's still a lot that he's unpacking here with the story of of slavery it's not you you can never just discount somebody like with with what we're talking about like one of these literary figures and say oh they're a racist and then right. you know just leave it at that point like there's there's yes, a lot that has to be considered well i think that's a silly it's a silly kind of question anyway or people always well was he a racist or wasn't well that's that's kind of a pointless question it's not even an interesting question what's more interesting is what does the way he used race tell us? Right. What can we learn from that? What do we learn about what Howard was trying to say? What do we learn about editorial decisions that the magazines that published this stuff were trying to say? The audience that was reading this stuff, there was a market for it. You know, what can we learn about these things? And, and that's what's fascinating to me. So yes, it's, it's silly to just dismiss, you know, I mean, you can't just dismiss a writer like that, you know, out of hand, you know, um, especially pre-World War II. I mean, it, it was pervasive. And there's a lot we can actually learn from that. And Howard in particular, I think there's a tendency with fans, and, and it's, you know, it's absolutely understandable um, that we, you know, we as modern readers read some of this stuff and we're like, oh God, that's, you know, you, you know, and you don't want to admit that the racism is there. And so a lot of fans try to sort of, well, he's just part of his time. You know, don't just ignore it, move on, you know, and try to uh, ignore it and forget about it. And that's understandable as fans because, you know, you don't want to say, well, hey, I like this, but it's racist. What does that say about me? Does that mean I'm racist too if I like this? Um, you know, it, it's a tough question to deal with. But I think that if you do ignore it, you're missing so much of what he was trying to do for better or for worse. Uh, you know, there's interesting stuff here and it's, it is very unique. It's also pioneering. Uh, you know, this, you know, Howard was a huge pioneer in fantasy, in fantasy world building and speculative fiction. You know, he's far more important than he's given credit for today by the science fiction and fantasy intelligentsia, mainly because they are embarrassed that this is their roots, you know, and they don't, you know, it, 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 you know, it is, it is problematic. There's no doubt about it. The big flap over Lovecraft this past year, and, and I don't know if you guys are familiar with the, the controversy with the World Fantasy Awards and the right. Lovecraft. Award, yes, yeah. It's a great example of this. You know, this is, this is the modern community having to wrestle with the problematic aspects of its origins. You know, and, you know, if you deny it, that's almost worse, I think. Yeah, I think it's better to explore these topics, look at where it came from understand it, you know, um, you know, don't just sweep it under the carpet and pretend it isn't there. You know, it, it, it is a part of it. It is a part of fantasy. It is a part of speculative fiction. You know, this is the, the roots are in this pulp stuff that's, you know, that has, that does have misogynistic elements. It does have racist elements. It just does because that was the culture of the time. Yeah. And, um, and surely in, in 20, 30 years down the road, I mean, we're, we're also in the midst of, of really, uh, critical consideration of, of, uh, the, the way that, that feminine writers are viewed within the field, just the merit by which they're judged, how represented they are within, uh, within the writing and like that inherent, you know, everybody, 
at this point is aware of of misogyny, but there's that latent right. level that's lurking there, and then there's all kinds of sexual issues uh, and gender issues. Like these are the things that we're that we're a product of our times. We're we're writing, we're right. reading, we're living, and these things are going to continue to evolve, of course. So right. it's just, I guess, important to really understand that perspective. Yeah, absolutely. You know, if, if you sweep it under the rug, you'll never come to terms with it. You know, and deal yeah. with it. Yeah, As somebody who's really into history, this has all been very interesting in terms of it's like a microcosm of the American viewpoint and experience yeah, because absolutely. that's what we've done for, for centuries now is, you know, oh, Thomas Jefferson, he wrote the Declaration of Independence. We're going to ignore the fact that he kept slaves, <laughs> right. impregnated slaves, and was really racist. We just yeah. under the rug or we try to ignore them or we get really angry about them. We put ourselves above these other people. We try to to view ourselves as the pinnacle in terms of of racial thought or gender thought or whatever, and it's just never the case. So it's been very interesting to you go know, through this. Humans, humans are complex. We just are. We are a complex, you know, big sloppy mess. <laughs> you know, we just are. You know, and but that's what makes us so fascinating. That's what makes literature so fascinating when it expresses our humanity. You know, um, you know, for me as a Howard fan, and this is an interesting thing too. The Solomon Cain stories are a great example of this. To bring it back to Solomon Cain, uh, I mentioned the first time I read them was in the Donald Grant uh, versions. Uh, the, you know, everyone knows that uh, DeCamp and uh, Lynn Carter did a lot of editing of the Conan stories and some of those things, and he gets a lot of heat for that. Uh, Donald Grant, who published a lot of Howard's other stories, non-Conan stories, he published some of the Conan stories too uh, in, the, in the 70s and, and, and up through the 80s, uh, heavily edited the uh, Solomon Cain stories oh. to remove the racial, some of the racial stuff that we're looking at now. Um, and so the first time a lot of people read these stories, they, you know, it didn't, it, it wasn't in as harsh a terms as what we're reading now. Okay. Uh, with the, with the Del Rey versions, and this is important uh, to, you know, to understand. And uh, DeCamp did that with the Conan stories too. You know, he, he would change, you know, just a few things here and there. You know, to make it, you know, you know, the stereotypes are all still there, you know, of course, but it, it was a little less harsh. And the Solomon Cain stories, um, you know, were pretty fairly heavily edited, uh, in their publication in the late 60s to the 70s. So that most of the people that were reading these stories in the first big Howard boom during that time weren't seeing them the way we're seeing them now. Um, this is one of the importance of getting these pure texts out. You know, this is where people like Rusty Burke and Patrice Lene and getting out, you know, these real authoritative versions of the text. It's so important. Um, you know, in, in some cases, it doesn't paint Howard in as good a light. But by the same token, it tells us more about what was going on. You mm -hmm. know, we can understand more, you know, about the time period and, and about what was taking place, you know, in these stories. And, you know, beyond just the stereotypes that we know about, you know, um, and, you know, the Solomon Cain stories, too, you know, you see fans, one of the things that people, you know, often point to when they're trying to defend Howard's racism, they'll use Solomon Cain as an example. And, but see, you have Nagora. You know, there's a, a you know, he, he's got a very good black sidekick. And I'm like, well, yeah, but he's a sidekick. And he's a stereotype. Yeah, you know, right. He's like, the juju man, know? right? Like, yeah, it's he's that. the juju man. He's what, what Spike Lee calls the magical Negro. Right. Yeah. Right? is that stereotype. You know, he's, 
you know, he can uh, he can benefit the white character, but only through supernatural means, right? You know, this is, yeah, I mean, and you see that today. You see it in things like the Green Mile. You know, the, I mean, that's something we haven't even outgrown yet. The legend of Bagger Vance. <laughs> the legend right, of Bagger yeah. Vance. <laughs> yes, yeah, thank you. Exactly. exactly. You know, I mean, this is something we still see today in modern culture. So, you know, it's one thing we, we can criticize Howard, sure, but, you know, have we still gotten over this? You know, it doesn't look like it, you know. Um, but talking about it the way we are, rather than sweeping it under the rug, is how we move past these things, you know. Yeah. So... <laughs> Man, the, I Why the, that well, well, you know, that's that's the thing that we were really building up to with our discussion sure. of what's been going on in the Absolutely. story. Like it, it really comes to a head with uh with Solomon Kane being in the dungeon and the fellow that he encountered. Exactly, right? the the Atlantean. And so is it earlier Luke and I had a had a conversation about this story and he drew an analogy to Lovecraft's At the Mountains of Madness wherein this this race sort of dominates the world and they produce another, you know, genetically or whatever, they produce another race, another type of organism, and that organism rises up against them, right? They lose right. their dominant. And that sort of theme, not not just race, but slavery. That's um, right, and revolt. And, yeah, and revolt yeah. and casting off your chains as Luke suggests, is is at the forefront in this story. And it's something that I, I didn't notice. I didn't notice it at all. But now talking to you guys and reflecting about the story, it's totally, totally, this is I, – I don't want to say Lovecraft totally ripped off Howard, but – No, I just – I really wonder, and can you speak to that, Jeff? Like is – Sure. Because this story mm-hmm. did come out about six months to a year before – uh, at the Mountains of Madness was written, but that pu- story wasn't published for years after it was written. Yeah. That's right. Um, I don't know. Yeah, it was published in, in 36, finally. Um, right. In Astounding. Um, I don't know for sure that Lovecraft was copying Howard here. It may be more that the two of them were drawing on similar things. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. You know, um, the, and the revolt theme is actually something that Howard plays with uh, several occasions. And, um, actually quite a bit. Um, you, you see it in a number of his stories. There's actually a really great, uh, academic, uh, article on this theme. And it was published in a very obscure journal called Slavery and Abolition. Oh. All place. It's a, a journal on, on the history of abolition and slavery. Interesting. Um, this, uh, this one scholar named Benjamin Garstad published an excellent article on Howard and his use of the slave revolt. Uh, in his fiction. Oh. And he looked at Black Canaan, which I don't think you guys have, have read yet, no. but it, it's sort of a, a story that takes place in the reconst- uh, Reconstruction period. And it's about um, sort of a, a black sharecroppers kind of revolting against uh, the white community there at the time, led by a, a sort of a voodoo juju man, essentially. Um, you know, to want to look at uh, racial tension and how Howard plays with that theme and really deals with it, that's a story to look at, for sure. He looks at uh, the scene in uh, Hour of the Dragon, where on the slave, on the ship, uh, where Conan, Conan himself leads a slave revolt. Yeah. Right? You know, so, um, and there's a couple of other stories. Um, Howard had a, um, a story that, uh, it's really juvenilia. Uh, it's a story called The Last White Man. Uh, and it's actually a very, uh, Awful story to read, really. Yeah, it, it's you know, it, it's basically a racist dystopia. Um, what a lot of people don't realize is what he was doing was doing a pastiche of a, of a Jack London story, 
Uh, this was a period where you know, Howard was about 16 or 17 and writing these stories, and he was uh, a little older, maybe 17 or 18, but he was uh, mimicking his favorite authors. And uh, one of them was a story by Jack London, and it's a, a sort of a, a theme where you know, all of the non-white races all band together to overthrow white hegemony in the world. And it's a dystopia in the future, you know, like a hundred years in the future kind of thing. Um, and so this is a theme that he plays with, this sort of a reversal, reversal of the social hierarchy or the potential for that or the threat of that or the, or the anxieties that go along with that uh, from a white perspective. You know? Um, you know, so that's there. And, uh, you know, it's a theme that appears in this story. It's interesting that Garstad didn't use this story. This would have been a great aim for them. Um, you know, because, you know, here, and, and to get back to the Solomon Cain story, you get this story out. You know, Solomon Cain finds this prisoner. We can go back to the story here a little bit, right? Yeah. He's a, a descendant of uh, Atlanteans. And he finds out that this city, this lost city that they're in, is was a colony, a mainland colony of Atlantis. And the Atlanteans he describes as brown-skinned, which is which is interesting itself, right? Um, because that implies what miscegenation, right? Um, this is a, a different race, you know. Again, this is him, you know, built, you know, playing on this race versus race thing. And they have uh, African slaves who then revolt against them um, and overthrow them, and that's who's you know here you know, in the in the city now today. And this Atlantean is the last of, of his kind. So, you know, he's very much playing with this theme. And again, this is playing on the anxieties of his audience as well. That's what you got to keep in mind. He's always writing to his audience, right? So this is a primarily, you know, white audience he's writing to. And he's used in a horror poem, right? And so what's the horror here? The horror is that white hegemony is threatened. Right, there's the potential for it being overthrown. There's a potential for a reversal of the social hierarchy here, and he's playing on those anxieties and using those anxieties in the story. You know, that's what he's doing, and uh, and this is an interesting point that Garstead brought out a lot of times in in Howard's work. Miscegenation is what plays into the idea of a civilization being overthrown. You have a civilization, it conquers another people, they end up mixing, and that mixing is what ends up leading to this civilization collapsing and this other civilization coming to power. And then they conquer somebody else and they mix with somebody, and that ends up bringing them down. You know, so this is very much a theme that he plays with, and you see this in a lot of the stories, and that's what he's he's getting at here, and that's what he's toying with, this idea. Yeah, it, and it's something that's it's really interesting to think about, you know, the, the horror of, of, of this story to, to a modern reader isn't mm-hmm. as striking as the horror of, uh, the, the, the big reveal in At the Mountains of Madness. Like, yeah. like with, right. with Lovecraft's right. sort of story, you have that, that cosmic vista and, right. and like eons before eons, you know, with our, uh, appreciation of race. Now, this isn't as scary a story That's right. as, as right. maybe That's at right. the mountains That's of right. madness, uh, well, still is. Like, cause you know, that, I don't, I just think it's really interesting how they both unpack the, the, the slavery revolt thing, but yeah, from right. very different angles. But, you yeah. know, that theme of, of racial mixing as, as a horror trope, 
was yeah. you know was was found in other the Lovecraft is a perfect example, yeah, right? Absolutely. With the, yeah, the Arthur German, the the strange yes. case of Arthur German, where he finds out that his uh, ancestor, <laughs> you know, right. was was an ape, right? And <laughs> and immolates himself yes. because he can't handle it. Um, yeah. So, mouth. I mean, that's what the whole you know, that's that whole story, right? That's yeah, about, you know, is the horror of miscegenation with alien beings, you know, fishmen, you know. So yeah, absolutely. Huh, cool. It's interesting to hear about this whole preoccupation with race and some of those mm-hmm. things I think you talked about in one of your uh, video podcasts about people were so obsessed with figuring out where races came from in this period, figuring out who was superior and why and how did right. white people get so far ahead in, in their ideas, uh, like why why did we win, quote-unquote win, and some of these theosophy folks that you talk about in their Atlantean descendants kind of ideas, uh, all that sure. business in terms of giving people, white people the advantage. Uh, it's just all, I, like, I can't imagine having a whole society kind of so preoccupied with that. Well, and that's, you know, that's why it's so hard for us as a modern audience to kind of wrap our heads around some of this stuff because it just seems so crazy. Um, you know, but we have a, you know, we're coming from a perspective, you know, all of us, you know, I'm probably older than you guys, but we've all you know, grown up in a, a desegregated society. We've all, you know, it, you know, it was so different back then. Um, and, you know, that's where a lot of my research has focused on, you know, my own background in, in archaeology and anthropology, you know, I naturally gravitated towards that and looking at how earlier versions of my own discipline influenced, you know, Howard and Lovecraft and these guys and God, it's kind of embarrassing when you look back and see the kind of stuff that you know, nineteenth century anthropology. It's horrible. You know, I mean, it's really, really bad. Yeah. And just and just crazy. You know, I mean it's crazy to, to us today, it seems nuts, you know. Um, you know, but you know, that was that was the thinking of the time. I mean, a lot of it was justification. Um, you know, you're trying to justify you know, the existing power structure. Absolutely, you know. But, uh, you know, it was the thinking of the time and it, it influenced popular culture tremendously, you know, and Howard and Lovecraft and these guys are a prime example of that. And, you know, it, it spoke to their audience. It spoke to, um, you know, it, it tied in even with ideas of evolution, you know, it was part of this as well, you know, and, you know, this, this was only three generations or so after Darwin. And yeah. people were still coming to terms with this. This was a time when, you know, just a few generations before, humans were special. Humans were divinely created, right? We're a special thing. We're not, you know, now all of a sudden we're just another animal. You know, we're maybe a highly evolved animal. We've changed and we've become intelligent. We've got tools and technology, but there's always the threat that we could devolve just as easily. Yeah. You know, that can always happen. And Howard plays with that idea, you know, and, you know, the, you know, the racial theme you know, is, is a part of that as well. You know, these are all the themes that Howard was playing with, the cultural anxieties of the time. You know, that's what permeates a lot of these stories. And that's what makes them so fascinating. For me, as a, as a historian of, of culture. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's almost what that's he what makes in, these stories. Yeah. Right? Like, he, he sees the future as there will be a reversal. There absolutely will be. There has been before. Yeah. That's right. He, he Absolutely. sees this long game almost of, That's right. of white people aren't superior. They're just superior right now. 
quote unquote me, superior. To follow up on your point, let me return to that story I talked about the last white right? Where, you know, I, I, as I mentioned, that was a, a pastiche of a, uh, of a Jack London story called The Unparalleled Invasion. And in the Jack London story, it's the same thing. You have all of the non-white races invade the white countries and take over and everything. But in the end, the quote, good guys win, right? The, the, the white race ends up surviving in the end and winning. In Howard's story, he does the same thing. It's the same story, except in Howard's story, just the opposite happens, right? Uh, the last white man goes down surrounded, you know, swinging and fighting, you know, like all how Wardian protagonists do, <laughs> but he, you know, and with a pile of bodies around him, but he goes down and he's defeated and a white race becomes extinct in Howard's story, you know, so it's again, that's what he does. He, you know, he borrows something, but then he gives it his spin. That's his own cynical take. It's usually, it's almost always a cynical spin, you know, <laughs> you know, and that's how he yeah. was. Um, but yeah, he saw that as inevitable. Yeah, we're on top down, but that's not going to last. You yeah. know, uh, you know, it, it's going to change. It's going to, you know, that's how it works. It's all cyclical. Yeah, and, and so like to bring it back around with the with the the moon of skulls, yeah, like we is. have, well, we well we have this last Atlantean, and we see him die. Right. Like it, yeah, exactly yeah, as you're it, saying, no. he goes, he exactly. he, you know, he exits He's, through the door, and that's you know that's, that's it, it for them, uh, and we're left with. Uh, with Solomon and he's informed now yeah. he knows that and just to sort of move the story along we have this this uh full moon every every month where there's these sacrificial rites that go on is that the moon of skulls that is the moon of skulls oh, okay. right uh and uh, I bet that Marilyn's going to be sacrificed at the next moon of souls. I bet. I bet that's the way. I bet that's what Nakari was talking about when she said, wouldn't you enjoy to be the bride of our God? I, I don't think she'll enjoy it. I just don't. I have this feeling. Solomon it better seems do like it should be on the itinerary for when you journey to Central Africa or anything. <laughs> yeah. Be sure to check out the lost city of Nagari. And if you have time, visit during the Moon of Skulls because the locals have an amazing, fascinating custom wherein they sacrifice somebody on this horrible, horrible. Uh, you and your daughter can bond. <laughs> exactly. The moon of the skull. <laughs> I'm sorry. No, 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 no. I don't want to go there. <laughs> <laughs> but we are, but we are there. And Marilyn is on the altar right now. She's, she, as we learn later, uh, she is prepped for a sacrifice for hours, right? Like there's, there's unmentionable things happen to her and, and probably she's rubbed down with some sort of oils and, and dressed in, uh, some sort of really nice bikini bottoms, but no top. And, I mean, this is how I would direct it if this were a movie, right? I don't know about you guys. <laughs> it should be pointed out that when you wrote for Weird Tales, you got an extra $50 bonus if you got the cup. Right. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And you if know, Margaret Brundage. So means, yeah. Well, and this was a little bit pre-Brundage. Okay. Still, this was fun. So, and if you can get a scene of you know, one woman whipping another woman or somebody giving you know, a naked woman <laughs> for sacrifice or something, you're almost definitely assured to get that $50 cover bonus. It, that is a significant chunk of change from what we've seen, how some of these stories oh, yeah. pay. Absolutely. I would do exactly. it. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, and I should say the Moon of Skulls got the cup. 
Yeah, yeah. <laughs> absolutely. Yeah, as it should have because it it there's a lot of toplessness in this story. So so the. So the last Atlantean, he's about to croak. He he explains, oh, yeah, we put all of these secret passageways in here. If you want to get to where the sacrificial uh, events take place, you hang a left, you hang a right, you go up well, some stairs. But, but then he's, he, he says, and then you, and then, yeah, <laughs> like Monty Python style. <laughs> um, and, and so Solomon Cain's like, oh, crap, I got to go. And he follows the directions to the T until he gets to the part where the Atlantean died. And then he's like, okay, some of these steps go up, some of these steps go down. What do I do? <laughs> right. Well, I'll just, I'll just run. 50 chance. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Long story short, he makes it in time. Like, uh, Marilyn has not been sacrificed, but the, the songs have, are being sung. The dances are being danced. All the, all the incantations are being cast. The, the moon is coming up. Things are not looking good for, for Marilyn here. And is it uh is it uh Nakari that has the the pistol sort of stuck in her in her belt or no is it it's another guy yeah. yeah so it's one of one of her tribesmen is is there Solomon's like oh snap there's my pistol it's in it's in I can go snag that and we can he you know he formulates the the quick plan you know he's connecting the dots about what he's about to do yeah I think Howard uses the description uh, tiger cat here which is which is two <laughs> two feline references in one that means finish your drink yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and so yeah this this is the the uh, penultimate scene right the the sacrifice is going to happen Marilyn is on the altar Solomon Cain luckily is able to to quietly get his pistol back. Then what happens? So he shoots this the skull, right? Yeah. This washed, clean, uh, grinning skull that's up. That is what? It was a, a former Atlantean, right? A priest, but they worshipped him as a god. And then when he died, they cleaned his skull out, and <laughs> then they put it on this altar, and that's what they sacrifice to. When the moon rises, it casts just the right amount of light on the skull to make it look awesome. So they're like, well, dudes, we got to sacrifice somebody when this happens. Not just that. You also have usually somebody behind there, behind that talking. Exactly. Right? Yeah. A priest, right? This is a key element. This is Howard uses this a lot, this idea of the false religion. Yeah. Is this, and so that, that's not a coincidence that it, that shows up here in this Solomon Cain story. You know, again, this is how it's commentary on, on is, organized religion. Is it the, the jewels of Gwalor that we see that in with jewels of Gwalor? You yeah. see it. You also, he hints at it in, uh, uh, a witch shall be born okay, as yeah. well, where, you know, there's the question is, is Mitra really talking to her or is that just a priest whispering behind the statue? Right. Yeah. Right. You know? And he leaves it ambiguous. You know, intentionally there, but here it's not ambiguous. It's you know, it's a false god. Yeah. And I do. You know, uh, this is his commentary that the priests mislead. You know, the organized religion is misleading. You know, it's bogus, and it's just there to. You know, this is very much how we're making a commentary on the organized religion. And so, and so, Cain has one one ball in his pistol. Right. That's it. That he's got one one shot at this. And like Luke alluded to, he nails the skull, which just as the moon strikes it at the right time and everyone sees it and they're anticipating the sacrifice and they're all into the dance. And, and this is, this is religious mania, right? Like these natives, these natives are (laughs) into it, man. And, and just then the skull explodes. There, there's a, an, an enormous crack of the pistol being fired. And that skull is just obliterated. And then chaos. And yeah. 
I like I like you know our discussion thus far has has sort of pointed to uh, religion in the story being sort of false, not just Solomon yeah. Cain's, but the the, yeah. the the native Africans as well. Um, and when they realize, oh, that skull is not really divine, they just go nuts. They yeah, they lose their mind. They start killing each yeah. other. It's it's chaos. And during that chaos, Cain is able to save Marilyn and Nakari gets in the way, but she doesn't stand much of a chance, right? Yeah, well, and I think, I don't know, I don't know if there's any precedence for this uh, in other Howard stories. Jeff, maybe you can talk to that mm-hmm. or if this is something that pops up later in, in other Howard stories. But Nakari is, is taken out by one of her, one of her servants, like this 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 maddened tribes, tribesman who's sort of like blinded and she bumps into him and he just just like snaps her like tosses her aside and her back hits a rock or something and she just right. crumples yeah yeah it's it, 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 that's an interesting scene i you know i'm trying to think of another example of, of something like that but you know i think the idea here is that again you're right they've lost it all they had was their religion again there, there's there's some racism here too you know clearly you know, there's this idea that without this, they just, you know, whatever pretense of civilization they had was just a pretense and it collapses now. Right. You know, Cain, Cain's destroyed it, um, you know, by destroying their religion, by destroying their God. And so they go crazy, you know, and they lose it, um, you know, and fall back into primal savagery, right? This is another theme of Howard's atavism, you know, and, and this, this throwback that civilization is temporary, right? It's an aberration. Uh, and that's what you had here. You had the facade of civilization. They're inhabiting this, this building, this city that they didn't build, you know, uh, trying to, uh, pretend that it's theirs, but, you know, it, it's really a facade and it's quickly crumpled, you know, when, when Cain destroys this. Um, you know, there's certainly some racist, elements to this as well but yeah you know but it also plays on howard's larger theme that civilization itself is ephemeral um you know that it's a uh you know it's an unnatural state you know and that's what happens you know all of a sudden as soon as that's cracked bam everything goes crazy you know people devolve into savagery and start killing each other yeah but that's kind of an interesting play in terms of these Kane stories that he's constantly at war with his own God, right? This idea of vengeance right. and all that stuff. Yes. And, sure. uh, he's already going around killing everybody. That's right. So I, do you think that there's something there that he's commenting on, on Christianity or? Oh, absolutely. I don't, I don't, I don't know. Yeah, absolutely. Because he sees organized, organized religion to him as a part of civilization. Right. I mean, that is absolutely a, to him, that's a symptom of civilization, you know, um, you know, and what he's pointing out is the hypocrisy there, you know, I mean, that's what he's saying, you know, is that so-called civilized people can be just as brutal, just as savage, if not worse, uh, you know, than barbarians. And then that's what's going on here. That's absolutely what he's, what he's saying with Solomon Cain. You know, Solomon King himself is such a, a contradiction. You know, he's supposed to be, you know, this you know, avatar of civilization. You know, the you know this is good Protestant, you know, Christian religion here, right? This is it's also a commentary on you know on the colonialist thing, you know, because it, I mean, it's, it, you know, Cain is very much a, an implicitly colonialist figure, right? This the white man coming into Africa and trying to fix everything, 
You know, that's yeah. very much a, a, a colonialist, colonialist narrative. Um, and the way he does it is, you know, kind of whacked. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know? And, and so, you know, that's, that's how we commentate on it. You know? And saying that, yeah, maybe, I mean, I do think that, you know, it's so easy to label him as just a racist and all that, but, you know, he definitely is questioning some of these ideas. He's questioning the colonialist narrative in a lot of his stories, not just this, but beyond the Black River and a number yeah. of others. You know, um, you know, he, he doesn't have the answers, I think, necessarily, but he is questioning and saying, you know, maybe, you know, the, you know, the humans are so much more complex than that. Uh, and I think he recognized that. Um, you know, and that's, and that's what Kane is. That's him again, trying to work out these ideas in his own mind. Yeah. I thought it was really interesting that Cain came to Africa and destroyed their religion. Um, yeah. and, and, you know, I, I thought about modern Christian missionaries who <laughs> go to Africa sure. and, Absolutely. you know, deconstruct the, the native religion and say, but there's a, there's an answer. And the answer is Jesus. And here's some medicine. Except what Howard's doing is taking it one step further and saying that, I mean, that's what Cain is doing. Here. Exactly. He's an allegory completely for that. Um, but then he's saying that, you know, he's going one step further and saying, but that's not a good thing. Cain is insane and, and <laughs> he's, he's replacing it with what? You know, another fake religion, you know? And that's what Howard is saying here, I think, with this. Yeah. Um, you know? And, so and it's fun. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's super cool. So mm-hmm. we, we learn at the end, Cain is English, right? He, he, but he can't stay in England. He, yeah. he, prescribes all of these benefits of civilization and religion, but he can't stay there. He has to be out being God's vessel. And he reiterates that from time to time, God gives him these, these missions to go on the, these uh, vengeances to wreak and he does it. And he's been doing it for so long and he's sure he'll, he'll do it again. But for now, Marilyn, let's, let's get the heck out of here. And the sun comes up, which is pretty symbolic, right? Like, the, the end of the long night, the false God is destroyed. The real God, uh, prevails, I, I guess. And I'm saying all this in quotes, right? This is right. part of the story. And the sun comes up and, and showers the, the jungle, the, the quote, quote, dark continent of Africa in, in his holy light. And, um, Cain goes home with Marilyn. Yeah. I, uh, not to like drag us into more details, but there's a quote at the end where she starts quoting the prophecies of Isaiah, right? Right. She starts talking about the Lord's vengeance that occurs in Isaiah's prophecies where God like demolishes the earth, basically. <laughs> it's very, uh, Cain-esque, Punisher-esque, if you want to go into modern Absolutely. pop culture. Yeah. It's this whole, uh, narrative about everybody's going to die. Uh, God's going to destroy the earth and there's nothing left because of his righteous vengeance. And I just thought it was really evocative that she starts quoting that to Kane at the end. And he's like, hell yeah, I love that stuff. You know? <laughs> uh, that's, that's my bag, man. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's my thing, man. Uh, and I, I don't know. Like, I thought that was really well done on Howard to, to call out those Isaiah prophecies. Uh, I don't really? know, Jeff, if you've got some stuff about that too, but. Well, yeah, I mean, you know, like I said, he was, he was a, very much a fan of the Old Testament. You know, he loved this stuff. You know, um, and, and not for the reasons that necessarily a good Christian would love this stuff. You know, uh, he loved it for how evocative it was. He loved it for the, uh, you know, God is practically sword and sorcery. 
You know, if you really, yeah, yeah. you know, I mean, it really is. And it's proto, you know, it's Samson and, you know, these figures, you know, um, you know, and that, and that's what's going on here. And he's, you know, you know, he's, he, he very much enjoyed that Old Testament theme and, and as a literary device. And he used that to good effect with, with Cain, I think, with a bit of cynicism in there as well, you know, and a bit of snark. You know, sure, and, sure. You know, if uh, have you guys read his letters at all? Well, I have uh, a copy of the the Hippocampus Press. It's Howard and and Lovecraft, yeah. like their their right. correspondence. I, right. I haven't read them yet. I got them for Christmas, but I need to also get copies of 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 them to yeah. these guys too, think, so we can use them. Yeah, it, it, it's fun when you start reading his letters because you start you start to see a very different Howard than what you just think of from reading the Conan stories. What you realize, he's actually a really funny guy, but he has a very snarky, witty, sarcastic, and cynical sense of humor. Um, and you start to see his stories in a different light when you realize that he has a side to him. And uh, that you know a lot of these stories are him being a smartass and commenting on modern society and modern culture and things like religion, you know, in particular. Um you know, and, and so th- there's a lot of that going on with Kane. I think. You know, I, you know, a lot of this is, is him taking out his frustrations on being raised in a small Christian town in Texas his entire life and having to deal with that. You know, I think, I think there's a lot of that in Kane. <laughs> you know, yeah, he's, I, he's, sure. I think so, you know, for sure. He, and he's having fun with it too. I, you know, I think there's actually, you know, um, you know, there's, there's actually more humor in these than you would realize, but it's kind of internalized, I think. Yeah. Uh, you know, this is this is Howard having fun with Christianity. You know, it's what these stories are all about. Uh, you know, and, and it's great. You know, it's good stuff. I love it. Definitely. <laughs> so at the end, at the end of the day, guys, and Jeff included, what do you what do you guys think of the story? I mean, I think from from all of our discussion here, like it, it's clear there's a lot to talk about. This is this is a pretty awesome story as far as I'm concerned. This had the most to discuss about the Solomon Kane character. So, so far, this is my, this is my top for sure. This is your favorite Kane story? Yeah, I think yeah. so. Okay. Yeah, I, I totally agree. That's, that, that's my sentiment exactly. How about you, John? This has been the definitive Kane story for me in okay. terms of just so much meat on the bone and so much to learn about Howard from reading this. And then, uh, not only us thinking about it and stuff, but having Jeff on definitely Helped to illuminate a lot of this and some of his work in the past as well. Definitely. I think Jeff needs to join us for every episode from here on. (laughs) (laughs) I'm generally available. Uh, Well, for my part, there's a reason why you asked me which Solomon Cain story I'd like to be on for. There's a reason why I chose this one. You know, I mean, it's just so meaty. There's so much stuff here. Um, You know, and there was so much stuff we didn't even get to. I mean, we really started to get some of Howard's world building here and his, uh, you know, making use of Atlantis and some of the, you know, past civilizations. Um, you know, there's, uh, you know, one of the, the big ideas, you know, that fans always argue about are all of these characters in the same shared universe. And they, you know, I, it, my short answer is, yeah, they absolutely are. Um, you know, and, and Howard would do little drops in here, little name drops. Like he mentions the god Volta in here, which is one of Cull's gods, you know, which puts it into... You know, that, that was him sending a, a message to his Weird Tales readers. Yeah, this is in the same universe, you know. Okay. Um, you know, and so there's, there's so much in this story. Um, but I do think that some of the things we've talked about here 
you know, some of the most important. You know, um, this is this is a period in Howard's career. It's really a formative period. Uh, you know, right here, he was just really starting to make it now as a professional writer, and uh, you know, he had been selling boxing stories. He was actually starting to make a living for the first time at this, and you start to see him working out. Uh, a lot of themes that he was going through in his own life, in his own mind, you know, at this period, a lot of it shows up in the story. Um, you see a lot of his influences in the story. We talk a lot about Jack London, but really the primary influence in the story is Edgar Rice Burroughs. And this is very much a Burroughs story. This is the lost city in the jungle, you know, that the, the, the white man goes to and, you know, has to deal with those, those different uh, factions, you know, in conflict. Here's the you know, the natives and the Atlanteans and, you know, the white guy that gets mixed in the middle of it. You know, again, that colonialist narrative. This is very much, um, you know, uh, Opar from, from the Tarzan stories. It's very much H. Ryder Haggard. You know, this was, this was Howard doing, uh, this, this theme, this, uh, Lost City in the Jungle theme that was so prevalent in a lot of the fiction of the time and that we see later in a much more developed uh, form in the Conan stories, in Zuthal of the Dusk, in Red Nails in particular, which is one of his best stories, you know. Uh, we see here, this is the prototype for that. And, uh, you know, Burroughs is one of his you know, biggest influences. And so we, we see that in this story. Um, we see him working out, you know, this miscegenation theme that we talked about. And, uh, you know, him working in sexuality into his stories for the first time here. You know, there's so much here. This is really a critical story for him, a real, a real turning point story. I think. Um, you know, it, with Solomon Cain himself, this character, you're seeing the beginnings of what becomes sword and sorcery. You know, he didn't set out to create a new genre. You know, he was playing with existing tropes and mixing things and doing things that would would sell. You know, he wanted to write historical adventure. In a sort of swashbuckling, you know, uh, Raphael Sabatini or uh, Dubois, you know, flavor, but he had to, you know, he had to sell it through weird tales. So he had to throw in supernatural elements, and so in doing so, he's unintentionally creating a new genre, you know, with with what becomes sword and sorcery, uh, mainly because he was you know, just trying to sell, and so he had mix and match stuff, and you're seeing that all coming together in this melting in some of these stories in this period. And that's why this is a really fascinating period in his career. Um, you know, it'll be interesting that, you know, the, the Cole stories were also uh, being written about this time and a little before. Uh, and it'll be fun to see you guys go through the Cole stories and see some of this <laughs> as well. I, I'm actually really looking forward to that. I hope you'll have me back for some of the Cole stories. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> Anytime you want to Chromecast, all you have to do is say, guys, I want to join in with this one and, and, and you're Buy in. Buy some whiskey, let us know. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> in terms fun. of that commercialization and that, that idea of a shared universe, sure. is he one of the progenitors of that? Well, you know, that is a great point too. The idea of a shared universe and crossovers and that sort of thing, we take that for granted today because it's a staple of superheroes. Right. Like Marvel, DC, the, that modern thing. That's right. And, but that was a very rare thing in Howard's time. <coughs> um, you know, the idea of a shared universe, very few people had done that before Howard. Um, Dumas, who was one of Howard's, you know, Alexander Dumas was one of Howard's favorite writers. He did that a little bit. He would, um, he would name drop some of his characters from different from these different stories, you know, Three Musketeers and some of those, he would he would mention, you know, other characters, so you sort of knew they were in the same existing in the same world. 
Uh, Jules Verne did it uh, with Mysterious Island when he he brought two uh, unconnected characters in uh, Nemo from 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea and this cast of uh, shipwreck characters from another one of the stories, I forget the name now, uh, Captain something, I forget. He brought them together in Mysterious Island, two previously unrelated stories. He brought them all together and so created sort of a shared view. So a few people had done it, but uh, nobody had really done that the way uh, Howard did. And, uh, and in fact, you know, later on, he actually, in a year after Moon of Skulls, he has a, a real crossover, a true crossover, where he has Cull, you know, from 100,000 years ago, travel through time to the Roman period to team up with Brand McMoran to fight the Romans. A, a true superhero-style crossover. Yeah. That was almost unheard of. Yeah. I mean, that, that's, you know, nobody did that, you know, at this point. You know, that was very much, you know, unheard of. Uh, the closest thing right about the same time was, uh, uh, Tarzan of the Earth's Core, where Tarzan, uh, crossed over with the, with, uh, Burroughs Pellucidar series, his Earth's Core series. Okay. And that was right about the same time, actually. And so that may have actually influenced Howard or, or vice versa, one or the other. Very cool. Uh, but yeah, he was a pioneer just in that concept, you know. And then, of course, there's the greater shared universe between the Lovecraft Circle. Yeah, I was gonna, I was gonna you mention know? that shared universe as well because Lovecraft, right. Clark Ashton Smith, Robert E. Howard, and and August Derleth, all those guys, you all know, were guys. were were notoriously self-referential and referencing one That's another's right. stuff in their works, and it's really fun to to read the, I guess the the Lovecraft mythos stuff and see, right. you know, uh, the 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 vermis mysterious and and things right, like that absolutely. pop up multiple times. It's it's super yeah, cool. It's very cool, and you'll see when you when you start reading the uh, uh, the Lovecraft and Howard letters, a means to freedom that yeah. you're referring to. In one of the first letters that Howard writes to him, he's like, "You this uh, the Necronomicon." I, you mentioned it, but this other writer also mentioned it. Is that real? I didn't think that was real. Is that a real book or something? You know, Howard asks Lovecraft this, and Lovecraft then confesses, well, actually, that other writer that you saw mention the Necronomicon, that was somebody I was ghostwriting for. <laughs> and so I, th- I, so I threw that in there just to give it a sense of verisimilitude. And that's where he sort of lets Howard in on the secret. Yeah, we're all not starting to name drop each other's stuff. You know, you should get in on this too. And so they start doing it. And, you know, a lot of times that's all it is, is just name dropping. But it does give that sense of this greater, you know, shared universe that they were all sort of playing in. It was sort of a mutual sandbox, yeah. uh, you know, that they could, they could play with. And, it, you know, it developed on its own even after they died, you know, to now you still have people playing in this mythos sandbox, yeah. uh, you know, and writing stories of people from Stephen King to Alan Moore, to, you know, I mean, everybody's doing, you know, writes mythos stories now in, you know, in this shared universe. Yearn you know? for a timeline where Lovecraft and Howard wrote DC or Timely Comics at one point in time. Well, wouldn't, that be, wouldn't that be cool? It yeah. would be cool. Yeah. And I really think that if those two guys uh, had survived, had, you know, lived beyond their, their actual lifetimes, then, you know, Julius Schwartz was, uh, an instrumental part of both of those guys' career. Uh, Absolutely. maybe, maybe Lovecraft more so than Howard, but then he went on to work at DC and was instrumental yes. in, in well, the construction of the Justice League. Like, yes. I really think at some point huh? we would have seen Lovecraft writing comics. I, yeah. I just. Yeah, probably 
maybe Lovecraft more than I mean maybe Howard more than Lovecraft. Okay. Was, Lovecraft was a little snooty. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, Howard, Howard wanted to make that paper. <laughs> he, he wanted to make that. He wanted to get paid. He'd have written for television. You know, when television came out, he'd have been all over that writing westerns and stuff. Who knows? You know, um, he'd have been. I, I could see him writing for comics. I, certainly, he would have made the transition into paper. Um, the Julie Shorts thing is, is is a cool thing. You could spend an entire episode just talking about early fandom and the figures in early fandom during the Weird Tales period who went on to then influence comics and science fiction and fantasy all throughout the you know, next few years. It wasn't just Julie Shorts, but also Mort Weisinger was also he and he and Julie were, were buddies writing fanzines, you know, in the early thirties uh, on you know, on Weird Tales and on Amazing Stories. You know, who also went on, you know, at DC. Uh, Jerry Siegel was a part of that early fandom community who created Superman. Uh, we know Jerry Siegel read Weird Tales. He was an avid Weird Tales reader. He was part of that fandom that read Weird Tales and Amazing and all that. So Jerry Siegel read the Conan stories. That's, you know, that's awesome. Right in, right in the period when he was creating Superman. Yeah. You know, he was reading Howard in Weird Tales, you know, religiously. He was, a, I mean, he was, he was active in fandom. He was one of the hard for Weird Tales things, you know. That's awesome. Um, and, and it makes me feel know. justified in saying those things, you know. <laughs> oh, absolutely. <laughs> um, you know, all of those guys, um, you know, Donald Wolheim, uh, uh, for, you know, uh, uh, Forrest Ackerman. You know, who went on to pub, you know, be a big publisher of uh, Famous Monsters of Filmland. You know, yeah. Some of the fanzines from the late twenties, early thirties are just absolutely fascinating because they're, you know, they they have Flame Wars and uh, <laughs> Howard and Lovecraft and all these guys. They participated. They contributed to a lot of the fanzines. You know, there was a lot of interaction between these guys, and um, oh, it's just a fascinating thing. Um, Frost Giant's daughter, for example, was published in a fanzine, not in Weird Tales. He got rejected by Weird Tales, so he sent it to a fanzine and let a, a fan publish it. Um, there was a um, – the fantasy fan was a big fanzine for Weird Tales, and uh, there's a famous flame war in there between Forrest Ackerman, who went on to become a big publisher – you know, at the time he was a snarky, obnoxious 16 year old <laughs> in a flame war with Lovecraft and Clark Ashton Smith. Oh, awesome. Like, <laughs> you know, mad that, that they were publishing in, in a astounding, you know, you know, Clark, you know, well, your stuff's not real science fiction. You know, that should stay in weird tales. It shouldn't, it doesn't belong in the science, you know. I mean, just the kind of snarky, obnoxious fan stuff that you see today on the internet. Oh, how familiar that sounds. You know, it's so, it's exactly the same, you know, but it was going on in these fanzines at the time that, you know, you had to wait for snail mail to get it to you. You know, these flame wars are going for months because of that. You know? That's, that's great. So um, what you're saying well, is the trolls of today will be the classic uh, science absolutely. fiction writers of 2100 or something. <laughs> you know, reading, yeah, absolutely. Reading the fanzines of the early thirties, it's just like reading the internet. I mean, oh. it, it, it's, it's really, a, it's a fun thing. Except in all of those guys, like you said, like Julie Schwartz and Mark Weisinger, all those guys, went on to become major players in comics and science fiction and fantasy publishing, you know, in the fifties, sixties, you know, after yeah. that, you know, it's, it's, it's all connected, all this stuff. It's oh, really cool. It's so cool. And it's so cool to talk about the architects <laughs> of this entire platform, this entire genre. And it's so cool to talk to somebody like you, Jeff, who, who has so much more knowledge about this stuff than we do. It, you know, when we talk to you and when we talk to Mark, it's, it's like we're sitting, uh, in the floor 
and and somebody is just like telling us stories and it's it's just awesome and no, you make me blush <laughs> it you know it pains me to John L Sullivan oh it could it could be that we have been we have been going for a little while and it 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 pains me a little bit to to bring it to a close but uh, I think we need to start moving toward that so any final thoughts before we wrap up. Uh, just a great story, a very interesting story in the end. I think I said earlier that when I started it, I was not engaged by it, but towards the end, I was just like, man, this is such a crazy, weird look into Howard's brain. And, uh, I just really ended up enjoying it a lot more than I did when I, the, like the first 10 or 15 pages or so. And, uh, big shout out and thanks to Jeff for joining us on this episode and helping us to illuminate and really bring out a lot of the different aspects of the story. Yeah. And Howard's brain at the time when he was writing it. Yeah. That's so a- thank you. Thank you very much for yeah. coming on the show, man. Thanks a lot, man. Luke, any final thoughts? No, no. I think, uh, I think we've hit it all. Like this, the story just has a lot of the cool themes that are just starting to emerge in Howard's writing. So. It's it's really it's been informative to have you on Jeff to to talk about all of that. Just it's information overload. Oh sure. man, it's, it's awesome! Yeah. It's, it's so awesome. Th- this might this might stand as the longest Chromecast ever. Uh, so we'll <laughs> we'll be sure to send, send the the award will be in the mail. Um, and I, I Mark, you should let him know. Uh, yeah, I think you beat Mark. I told you, you guys got to cut me off. I start talking about this stuff. I just go on and on. Man. Well, bef- bef- before we sign off, Jeff, is there anything that you're you're going to get into? Or involved with that's coming along that you you want to uh, mention? Uh, well, yeah, I, there's a few things. I, I I'll tell you, um, there's one project that's coming up that uh, is just awesome, and I really wish I could say anything, but I, I actually had to sign a non-disclosure agreement, and I can't talk about it. Oh, okay. Well, yeah, which show, which ought to tell you it's something that, cool. That's exciting. Yeah. Um, yeah, and it should be, but you should be hearing about it within the next few weeks if everything goes well. And then okay. once you hear it, you'll know what I was talking about. Fingers crossed. Okay. It's very cool. Um, but yeah, several cool things coming up. I'll be at, uh, Pulp of DentureCon in a couple of weeks in Fort Lauderdale. Um, in April is the, uh, Popular Culture Association Conference. And that's the big academic conference for this kind of stuff. Okay. And you can actually do this stuff in academia now. You can yes. just talk about pulps and stuff. Who knew? You know, man, if you could do classes on pulps when I was in college, God, I would have actually shown up for class more. <laughs> um, you know, Mark's going to be there giving a paper. I'll be giving a paper, a bunch of us. And, of course, in June is Howard Days uh, in Cross Plains, Texas. So you guys that are Howard fans, if you've never been to uh, to Howard Days, i got to tell you, it is an experience. And you should make the pilgrimage at least once in your life. You can go there. Howard's house is there. The typewriter is still sitting right there on the table. You know, it's a cool experience. Come hang out with us and drink some whiskey and shoot, you know, shoot the, shoot the shit and tell lies. That's what we do there. And it's a lot of fun. And I hope you guys can come sometime. Oh, I'd love I, to have a live Chromecast from Howard Days. Oh, I, awesome. I hope so. It would yeah. be, we would just Chromecast for 24 hours. I, I don't know. It would just, it would just be awesome. <laughs> Well, Jeff, again, thank you so much for joining us. This, this has been a, this has been an absolute pleasure. Um, It's been a blast and, you know, I'd love to come back sometime. Absolutely. Anytime. Listeners, you can find us on the web. You probably already know this by now at http colon forward slash forward slash the chromecast.blogspot.com. We are on uh, the Stitcher app. You can stream us right into your ear holes. If you don't want to download us, just stream us. We're on Twitter, twitter.com slash the Chromecast, Facebook, Facebook.com slash the Chromecast, and you can call us 859-429-CROM and tell us what you think.
it's a school night and it's 10 o'clock. So me and Luke have to go yeah, to sleep. And, only, yeah, me too. I, and kids too. I, know, I know the drill. <laughs> but, but John, it, the night Central is young for time zone. <laughs> Central time zone. <laughs> <laughs> All right.